Big Sky, Big Potential. In association with Mills and Reeve, this is Eastern Promise. Achieving more together. Wherever you are in our region, be it Huntingdon, Halston or Halesworth, there's no denying that the heritage of the East of England is embodied in its historic built environment. That includes everything from historic town and city centres to many civic buildings, private homes and business premises. That's a lot of buildings, all of which are difficult to heat, require power and hot water. And I'm sure, uh, educated lot that you are, you already know where I'm going with this. The carbon emissions resulting from that demand for power and heating are sizable. But knocking down those buildings and replacing them with glorious steel and glass edifices with every known tool of sustainability at hand overlooks the huge amount of embodied carbon these buildings already represent. To say nothing of the fact that many, if not most, of these buildings are fundamentally connected to our sense of place and community well-being. So, what's the answer? How do we future-proof the East of England's heritage? That's a question you're about to hear answered. Good morning. Oh, wow. <laughs> Deary me, I must have... <laughs> must be narcoleptics conference that I've wandered into by mistake. Good morning! Morning. That's better. I'm Mike Rigby. I'm Chief Executive of Eastern Promise. It is my supreme pleasure to welcome you all to the magnificent Frankopan Hall uh, at Jesus College, Cambridge, and to future-proofing the East of England's heritage. Thank you so much uh, for being here today, travelling as you have from every corner of the East of England, from Norfolk, from Suffolk, Right. <laughs> well, there you go, folks. The enthusiasm of the Suffolk cohort from Cambridgeshire. Where and we was, uh, is, is Maggie from Luton here? No, nope, we've lost Maggie along the way. Never mind. Well, you don't get that on any questions. Be fair. Um, Eastern Promise. What is Eastern Promise? It officially became a not-for-profit community interest company earlier this year. Our business, if you can call it that, is full-throated advocacy of the East of England, by the East of England, for the East of England. Not just for the whole region, but for our individual counties, cities, towns and communities on their own terms. The East of England is far richer, I believe, far stronger because of these diverse voices, cultures and outlooks. That diversity has, I believe, created the most exciting, dynamic and capable region in the UK. And, and we saw that yesterday. I know uh, Dr Anthony, Dr Johnson saw that yesterday, uh, the launch of the Innovate Cambridge strategy at the Guildhall. We saw it last week. Hello. <laughs> it's all right. Um, we saw it last week with the publication of the University of East Anglia's Civic Charter. And we have uh, Joe, Dr Johanna Forster, um, who's, a represent, who's representing the, the Civic Charter, amongst other things, here today. Uh, and the potential of the renewable energy sector to transform coastal communities such as Lowestoft remains undimmed, despite recent setbacks that will blow over. Not even a pity groan. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, 
confirming our not-for-profit status was followed by a partnership with Mills and Reeve. Um, a legal firm with incredibly strong values to which we subscribe wholeheartedly. We're also broadening our offer with more roundtable discussions and events like this. Uh, we recently convened two panel discussions looking at the ability of the Norfolk Brex to support the growth of Cambridge. And in February, Eastern Promise will be hosting a summit on creating a symbiotic food, health and innovation ecosystem in Norwich, bringing together industry, local government, MPs, researchers, academics. Now, turning to why we're actually here today, what fascinates me about this conversation is the juxtaposition of the conservation of the past with the preservation of the future. How we square the circle that a team of Italian and Spanish academics are described thusly. Historical buildings, usually low performance by definition, often contribute to townscape character. They create the urban spaces that are enjoyed by residents and attract tourist visitors. Now, thankfully, we've got some amazing panelists for you today, looking at decarbonizing heritage, repurposing historic buildings, and the search for funding, and reflecting on all that we're gonna hear today. We're at Jesus College, because so many people told me that there's a great story to tell here, one which I look forward to hearing directly from the bursar, Dr. Richard Anthony. And from where it's been done right, let me, as a former MP's researcher, offer you an example of where this is going horribly wrong. This place, yes. Gaze upon it and tremble. Now, if I had more time, I was gonna animate the clock face, pinging off the Elizabeth Tower with cogs and springs everywhere and have it sliding gently into the Thames before I realised that might just be stuff I need to work through on my own. Um, and I should have added the sound of a sewage-filled can being kicked down the road. Despite the best efforts of many in the Palace of Westminster, it's a classic case of where duty of care, not just to the building or the planet, all the people in them, it's come second place to optics and expediency. That's why it's so lovely for me to come here to Cambridge, to Jesus College. And it always puts me, being in the college, in mind of what Parliament could be were it cared for properly, like the UNESCO World Heritage Site it is. So let's look about how we can learn from that care, the issues involved, and how policymakers like Dr Nick Johnson, the Mayor of Cambridge and Peterborough, who I am honoured to have with us today, can support and encourage that effort. Upon that note, before we get started with the first panel, can I just invite Dr. Richard Anthony to just say a very brief uh, few words of welcome to Jesus College today. Thank you, Dr. Anthony. Thank you. I'm going to stand here just in case the mic's not working. So, look, welcome to Jesus College. We're an institution that was founded in 1496 by the Bishop of Ely, who decided that a rather run-down nunnery, the Priory of St. Radigan, would be a good place for a college and persuaded the king, King Henry VII at the time, it was a good idea. And as a result, we have buildings that date back to the 12th century. And by the way, if you get a chance, I recommend a visit to the chapel, which not only is a medieval building, but had a lovely pre-Raphaelite makeover in the 19th century. And my job and the job of my predecessors over many centuries has been to nurture and develop the buildings on this site from the medieval to the modern. And the building we're in now was built in 2017. And I think all of this forms an ideal backdrop to the topic of today's event, as even our modern buildings will become the heritage buildings of the future. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Anthony. The first panel 
Okay. From the right, I'm going to... You, you obviously already know Dr Anthony, but can I ask David to introduce himself to you? Hello, I'm David Tiddle. I'm Chief Executive of the Heritage Trust Network. We're a membership organisation for charities, community organisations and social enterprises that are in the business of recycling buildings. So our members rescue, restore, rejuvenate, reuse and manage historic buildings and other historic sites, mainly buildings. And our members come in all shapes and sizes and the end uses of their buildings vary tremendously. Um, in sort of from, from your classic heritage visitor attraction to homes and business space and art centres and what have you. I was invited here today, I think, as a result of our outreach officer, Leona, who's based in Norwich, and her work is connecting with community groups that don't have heritage in their title, but um, are nevertheless in historic buildings, either by choice or by accident, uh, but want to do the right thing by them and make the best of them. So that's what we're about. Thank, Thank you, David. You've obviously already met the bursar. Laura. Hi, I'm Laura Ludlow. I'm a Principal Associate at Mills and Reeve in our real estate team. Um, so I do a lot of work with uh, education clients, particularly helping them manage their property portfolios. Uh, I also lead our sustainability group at Mills and Reeve, helping clients work to develop and manage their portfolios to get to their net zero targets. Um, with another hat, I sit on the BPF Sustainability Committee and their Green Lease Working Group, looking at how we can make green leases more widespread across the industry. And finally. Um, thank you. Um, well, I, I'm, I think I'm here because of your enthusiasm. Mike. Yeah, it's, it's, um, I mean, in fact, your organisation, when it talks about exploring the full potential of the east of England, in some ways, if it was just the Cambridgeshire and Peterborough area for which is a combined authority. That is where I'm the mayor of and have been for the last two and a bit years. I'm here as a, as a guest as a politician uh, and as such this is not my comfort area when we talk about architecture per se but the aspect about retrofitting is a role where obviously local government uh, has an important part but I will confess now it's not an area that really in terms of actual specific targeting historic buildings the combined authority has been involved before. So I'm, you know, usual thing that a politician says, I'm in listening mode, trying to understand where the role of the combined authority, which does have an important part in retrofitting per se, across the whole of the local area, could learn and could support. Um, I'm particularly interested actually to get, to get into, into a minute. To a certain extent, Cambridge is looking after itself, but you've got a lot more historic towns like Ely, um, Wisbeach, Peterborough, under your, under your <coughs> Huntingdon's and uh, under your uh, your ambit, so your your as it were. And, the, and that, that's very much. Thank you for picking up on that because obviously when I do speak, I, I speak always with a thought of the wider area of Cambridgeshire and Peterborough, acknowledging the gems that are within that whole area and the importance that in the longer term and something I can report on is that within recent times we've developed an idea of a, a proper cultural strategy for our local area which would obviously then link in with the constituent authorities covered by that that maybe Peterborough City, Cambridge City but also for instance Huntington District Council and how trying to work that in into a natural thread where the benefit of uh, focusing on cultural assets can also be good for the economy ultimately into 
terms of devolution, the combined authority six years ago was set up with the idea of um, doubling GVA, um, making the economy grow. I mean, it's very much the narrative at the moment, making the pie get bigger. Um, but unfortunately, in this area, often it's kind of follow the big hitters, so investment in biotech, AI, agritech, you know, life sciences. And that's all very well and good, and they may well bring a lot of money into the local area, and that's good for the economy. But it's... Uh, not from a necessarily a position of strength, but it's a, it's a recognition that cultural assets also can drive the economy Absolutely. as well. Absolutely. It was interesting to see um, that uh, that's something that came out of the Labour Party conference, looking at cultural infrastructure strategy. But I'm going to ask... You'll, you'll all notice the, the triangular graph above us, the chart above us, which was provided by Dr Anthony. We've heard, I've heard, lots about how Jesus College has a wonderful story to tell. Could you just indulge us and tell us the story? So, um, first thing I should say, it's always a team effort, and I'd like to, the domestic versus Stuart Webster and I work very closely together to deliver, in fact, a decarbonisation as part of a holistic strategy, because the goal is net zero. That's what it's about. And we're developing the means to do that across both our operational estate and our investment properties, and that's all in and around Cambridge. And the first thing you need to do is have a policy. I know that sounds very simple, but you need to get all your stakeholders together around some agreed aims. And we have a sustainability strategy and a responsible investment policy. It's important to do this first, because then hopefully you have the support. Um, and even those who might disagree have at least been consulted and therefore accept what is happening, because what, what's going to happen is change. Um, and in a place like a university, where there is constant questioning and intellectual um, curiosity, that's essential. So we got our policies agreed in 2020. We have discovered since then that it is getting to net zero is going to be incredibly hard um, and potentially very costly. Um, and anybody who says they can do it quickly is either not being truthful or is doing it in a way that effectively cheats by using offsetting. So to drive, uh, to drive forward change, we established a decarbonisation working party on which staff, students and academics are representative. We found the energy hierarchy, which you see above you, many of you will probably recognise it, as a rather useful tool, particularly when engaging with our stakeholders, who are, after all, the users of our buildings. And we're not, we're not a heritage organisation. Our aims are about education, research, learning. Um, but the environment we work in is a heritage one. And it allows us to focus on what's going to have a real impact. And there are some really simple messages that you can get across from, from using the energy, the energy hierarchy. Firstly, you need to think about energy demand reduction. And that is about building use and individual behavior. So it's about when you turn the heating on what sort of controls you have on energy use, especially heating, and getting the whole community to think about their role in the consumption of energy and giving them the tools. Yeah, so we are just launching our A to Z of sustainability. It's, I think about to go on a website. Yes, Stuart's nodding. That's good. Um, I wonder if this is a bit of glib, because, of course, going through A to Z, there are some things that are more important, some, thing that, some things that are big, some things that are small. But I can't emphasize the importance of getting buy-in and getting everybody involved. Uh, um, again, we found this a really helpful and useful way of getting that across. 
And this, this has very much come sort of ground up as well, bottom up. So you need to combine that energy efficiency measures, and that is where it becomes more of a challenge with historic buildings. Um, because that can affect the fabric and design of buildings. So, you know, the classic example is the use of double or secondary glazing. It's one we're all probably familiar with. Um, retrofitting exterior doors to open staircases. We actually have quite a lot of those. It's actually quite difficult because they are heritage buildings. Um, insulation is another option. And, and again, it has its challenges. Um, but ultimately, we all know we have to degasify. We have a large site here with a lot of large buildings and centralized heating systems and with some, some limited space to retrofit new technologies. The first thing you obviously have to do is try and take advantage of any opportunities that come along. And, and we just completed a very large kitchen redevelopment project. Um, I, I have built the most expensive kitchen extension in the world. <laughs> <laughs> won't tell you how much it costs because it is <laughs> but it is unbelievable um it, uh, knocking a hole in the side of a grade one listed building and putting in a very large basement below it as well um as part of that we were able to put in large ground source heat pump um and uh, we put 50 boreholes put them underneath our cricket pitch Fortunately, it went over two seasons cricket seasons the cricketers weren't very happy but um, it's, you know, it's all good, it's all, all running now, and it will be fantastic for the future. And that is a one in a hundred year project, one in a hundred year opportunity. Um, but how and when we can afford and manage the replacement of all our centralized gas boilers, let alone the boilers in our 80 student houses that we have around here, which are all, they're not formally listed, but you would regard them as historic buildings. I, I, I'm not clear how and when we're going to do that, and that is an incredible challenge. Um, you can look for other renewable energy technologies, and PVs are a popular one, but how do they work with heritage buildings? Although after the King's College Chapel decision, which many of you will be aware of, perhaps anything is possible. Um, in fact, I think this is a seminal moment because it reverses the question from can we install renewable energy te technologies? So why can't we? My view is that we need to have a complete rethink of how we approach design and planning so that sustainability is at the heart of everything we do. Um, and so one of the first things I think you do if you're ever going out on a project is you should have a sustainability brief from day one. And as for planning, I think sustainability should not just be one voice in the room amongst the officers and consultants, it should be embedded in every decision that is made and everybody is thinking about it because that is the only way that we can get to net zero. And then, you know, as the triangle shows, we're left with a residual level of carbon emissions. And um, this is, um, I've got, um, if you go on to the next slide, there's, um, this is just illustrative. Apologies to Max Fordham, I think there might have been in the room. I pinched them out of one of this room one of their reports. Um, so just take it as illustrative. This shows what happens to our buildings on our operational site when you electrify, you get rid of all the gas and you've still got a bit left. And it's very difficult to get rid of that. So you end up with a conversation around renewable energy offsite and offsetting and the latter's problematic. I think if you're going to do that, you have to try and do it yourself, effectively insetting or doing it with somebody else who is near to know, near to you, you know them very well and you know that they're committed to the long term. Um, and there's also the cost of all this, and I definitely don't have the answer to that. Um, I'm feeling a bit more positive because we are involved in discussions around the City Heat Network, which some of you, again, may be familiar with. 
basically having an, a network of energy across the city for heating and hot water, and I think that is probably the real solution that we're going to have to look to. Thank you, Anthony. Um, I want to come to David in a minute, but first, Laura. Jesus College, uh, uh, Richard mentioned the student accommodation, and they've, they've obviously got they've got a property portfolio. I want to invite you to sort of comment on that and sort of the key legal issues around uh, decarbonising heritage, particularly when that heritage is in use uh, with tenants and so forth. Um, thanks, uh, Mike. You're welcome. <laughs> um, the most pertinent thing I think from what Richard was saying um, is the bringing all your stakeholders on board early and getting that sort of collaboration going because that's. The only way that anybody's going to get to net zero is by working together. Um, and from a sort of landlord and tenant perspective, that's a real um, shift in mindset from how historically the relationship has been. It's always been quite adversarial. Um, and there hasn't been that collaboration. But in order to, to get to net zero, what we're seeing now are landlords and tenants far more willing to work together. So making sure you've got the provisions in your, your leases that allow you, if you're the landlord, to be able to make the changes that you want to make, the environmental improvements that you want to make. And equally, as a tenant, tenants will have their own um, net zero targets as well that they want to meet. They want, might want to be able to do works as well to improve the um, environmental performance of their building. But again, it's all about the dialogue, the sharing of data. The data is so, so important. Um, in working out where you're starting from. Um, you wouldn't have your chart like that if you don't know where your baseline is. And how what you're doing to your building is um, getting you, hopefully, in the right direction, or if it's not, what you can change um, in order to make sure it does. Richard was saying about getting sustainability as the sort of undercurrent that runs through all decision-making on a project and getting that in right from the start and not sort of doing your design working out your project and then thinking, oh, well, we should have had a sustainability consultant and getting them in as a sort of an add-on. It's for everybody involved in the project to really get that input in right from the start. And you can do that as, from a legal perspective, as well as looking at your leases and your property documents to make sure there are no restrictions on what you want to do. Um, we're also doing a lot more work um, in our construction team with our construction contracts. So putting provisions into our construction contracts about as you've decided what you're going to build and what targets you want that development to meet, how you make sure that your building contractor and all your professional team work together with you to, to meet those targets as well. I mean, that's, that's such an obvious point, but it's, it's something that doesn't always get factored in in the way it should. And I'm going to come to Nick in a moment just to ask him about the way that political leadership can help embed these things. I know it's in, in some circles that uh, it's not, not the buzzword of the moment, but I think I'm safe in saying that if, if the assembled here didn't think this wasn't important, you wouldn't be here. So, David, can I just ask you to reflect on what you've heard so far? Certainly, yes. Um, our members are very interested and very keen on, on this area, um, not least because of the recent energy price hikes, which have has focused many people's might given people a very practical reason to engage with energy efficiency. But not just because of that, because they are charities and social enterprises, they have that wider, um, that wider remit, they have those values. 
that they um, want to be socially useful, and also because funders are asking, you know, what are you doing about this as part of your projects, and, and so on. So I, I'd just like to begin, though, by saying we shouldn't beat ourselves up about being in drafty buildings, because we're the good guys. By recycling buildings, we're saving embodied carbon, and that's a tremendous thing to do. It's a good thing with each building that we do that with, with each building that we retain. Uh, but it's also a good thing because it helps to shift the paradigm away from the idea that we always demolish and rebuild. Um, and we're also, in doing that, creating local facilities enabling people to live, work and play locally, reducing travel, which takes the strain off roads and rail, means less need for additional infrastructure, which is also carbon heavy. And we need to keep making these arguments and, and keep the debate public. For example, you know, to get into those policy areas, VAT, it's a massive incentive to demolish instead of retaining. But even things like business rates, which um, incentivize out-of-town development over our historic cause. And Richard talked about planning and the idea that um, you know, sustainability should be in every decision in planning, and I'd certainly agree with that. And I, I would say that ideally there should be a, just a presumption against demolition in planning, that you start from the point that we don't demolish and applicants have to really prove the case on sustainability grounds as well as other grounds that demolition is, and rebuild is the best thing to do in those circumstances. Now, having said that, I think we need to do what we can. And I think the, um, the inverted triangle is what everybody is the sort of thing that everybody looks to. And as Richard mentioned, we look for those everyday quick wins in our operations, procurement and use of energy, thing, you know, all those little things like boiler setting, timing, maintenance, draft proofing, insulation, types of lighting, um, and water saving. Um, different strategies for different types of buildings. Like heat, in some cases, it's appropriate to heat the building, not the space. So a lot of churches now are going for sort of under pew heating. So you're not trying to heat that vast area with its, maze, with its high ceilings. You're just heating the, the poor people that have to sit in it. Um, we have some, you know, some great videos on our YouTube channel with lots of practical tips. Uh, the one that really stuck out for me was to... Um, to use fridge magnetics to, uh, to cover drafty historic keyholes. <laughs> Obviously, when important people come around, you need to send somebody around to remove the fridge magnets. But, you know, a nice little strategy. But it, it isn't just about our buildings, isn't it? We're, we're operating in those buildings, and we need to look at our entire operations, like our, our transport. Can we incentivize public transport and use of EVs? Our purchasing. Um, you know, giving weight to sustainability, our everyday reuse and recycling. When it comes to retrofitting buildings, there is plenty of advice around. Historic England are a great source of advice. They're doing more and more. And as Richard says, you know, when it comes to those opportunities for renewables, 
that they are limited and they come at certain points that we need to grab the opportunity. And often with historic buildings, it's when we're doing those things like a, a contemporary extension or, or an enabling development that, that we can do. I was involved years ago in a um, restoration of six medieval cottages in, in Coventry, and we created a bit of sort of a new build at the back, which uh, was on the footprint of the old back extension. And we managed to get solar th thermal water heating in there, as well as rainwater harvesting for the building. So you just take those little or big opportunities when they come. Mike, I agree absolutely with what you're saying about parliaments. <laughs> yes. It's, it's. I, I, the, one of the first interviews I did was with George Freeman, who's uh, at Mid Norfolk MP. Um, he wasn't at the time, but he is now a Minister for Science. And uh, the last question I always ask when I've interviewed MPs is, which other MP would you most like to be stuck in a lift with? And we talked about how the state of the building meant that wasn't an unlikely occurrence. And uh, you know, he he sort of cheerfully said, "Oh, you know, a huge chunk of chunk of masonry only just missed the chief whip yesterday." So all right, okay, that's an everyday occurrence in a workplace. Um, Nick, you can't do anything about VAT. Nope. <laughs> what levers are available to you to sort of change the conversation on the lines that the rest of the panel have outlined? <laughs> I have to say, as I was listening there, I was thinking, where am I going to go on this? No, I was so, that so, so first where of all, if go? I was put into the sort of the big politics of it, uh, the, what is coming down the line, as far as I understand, from a, at, a, at a national level, is is more devolution. So the the, the idea of metro mayors, there's ten of us now, but ideally, possibly coming out in the autumn statement, is a, is an acknowledgement that devolution which and the best examples would be and going cross party would be Andy Burnham in Greater Manchester and Andy Street in the West Midlands and I think they are seen and held up by different political parties as actually promoting their local areas and doing a good job of it in terms of promoting growth economic development and as such I, I would love to follow in in those uh, you know their their examples so you need more devolved powers uh, you talked about business rates. I, I, at, at the combined authority level here in Cambridge from Peterborough, I have no access to uh, that sort of fiscal uh, raising powers. But, but being a mayor that I think I want to be and a mayor that I think would be good for the combined authority area, the fact is that if you then had control over that kind of power of devolution, you might be able to be very specific about how you benefit certain areas and, and others, you know, so the importance of heritage and culture and how you then kind of apply your business rates could be the immediate thing. I don't have that power at the moment. What, what, I, what we do have to some extent is a control of the adult education budget and with adult education budget working with local businesses there's an expectation that we you know look at opportunities that are coming down the line. This is an opportunity. Yeah. Um, how, how much it is being seized by local authorities, be they at a district council, at a county council level, or indeed at a combined authority level, uh, I think is open to question. I, I, I see it as a great opportunity. I, I mean, I've got so many notes here which were kind of what are the, what, how, how difficult it is to do, but what potentially, you know, what could be the benefits. And if I think about elsewhere, not actually in a combined authority area, one perfect example of an adaptive reuse and economic revitalisation would be the Peace Hall in Halifax. 
and I, I know I, I don't know if any of you have been there, but I, I visited Halifax a long time ago uh, with a very good friend of mine, uh, long before it, was, it went through this whole process. But that's a perfect example, which is now heralded in the north of England as a great place to do music concerts, but it's a whole idea where they've got office space development. Now, I'm not suggesting that would be right for Jesus College, but there's lots of examples in Cambridge and Peterborough by focusing on that we can make more of our cultural assets and at the same time, once in a hundred uh, years, make sure you retrofit them in the right way. Mm -hmm. We can do that. We have access uh, to, to some budgets, you know, mostly around the skills agenda where we want to encourage people to skill up in those, you know, to, to, in terms of retrofitting and have the expertise as different technologies come on that. That's, that's good for growth. You see it as an area. Taken away from here, I think I will be going back to the teams that work with a um, Southeast Great Net Zero Energy Hub. I said, do we have a, a group? Do we have a, a specific um, team that focuses on the retrofitting of, uh, of you know, heritage buildings? I, I don't know. This region is so rich. I mean, 650 churches in Norfolk is the, yeah. the greatest concentration in the world of, of, of religious buildings. And, the heritage buildings in, in across your uh, your patch, your constituency. What an amazing uh, you know resource. Even even sort of the, the, the towns we think of as, as as run down and perhaps not you know need need some help. They've got amazing heritage assets that can be really part of that regeneration. I just want to come back to Lord because I see in your notebook. I'm sorry to have <laughs> very rudely gazed upon it. The the, the dread four letters of uh, NPPF. Now. One thing I wanted to ask you, and I hope this isn't, <laughs> this is, this, I'm not going to put you on totally on the spot here. One of my concerns about the NPPF is, and I admit I'm, in, I'm probably one of the least informed people in the room on this, is to what extent is that viewed as <coughs> the base minimum of what we can do? And what extent is it kind of like people trying to say, well, no, it's not in the NPPF, we don't have to do it. What, what's your experience of that? Well, I have to caveat everything I'm about to say with I'm not a planning lawyer. So. Okay, Laura's not a planning lawyer. Um, but, um, I mean, feel free, feel free to adapt the question well, in well, an informed way. Cause I'm... I mean, that, it, it raises an interesting point and actually follows on from Nick, what Nick was saying, is there is a general lack of consistency, I think, across the country as to how um, different local authorities apply... Um, MPPF considerations when they're looking at a, at a... You've made an application to to maybe alter a heritage asset. And I think we really do need... If we're all going to get to net zero together, which we, obviously we need to do, we do need that sort of overarching um, consistency across the country. So um, developers putting in or property owners putting in these applications have a bit more certainty as to what is going to be considered and, you know, why can I make an adaptation to a building in Halifax that maybe I can't make in Cambridge or vice versa? Um, and I know... So there was a big piece of work done for the government, um, which Liz Truss, actually... One, one thing she did do during <laughs> her short tenure was to commission a piece of work um, called Mission Zero, where they... Chris Skidmore, the MP, looked yes. at um, where the UK was and how it was going to get to net zero. It's a really interesting report. I highly recommend it. Interested, um, but as part of that, they did recommend a sort of whole set of getting net zero into the planning um, process, but consistently across the country. So I think that is something that they that needs to be looked at and needs to be thought about because 
we'll, we'll go on to I expect to talk about planning more. Rich has probably got more experience from having to do these recent developments. But in terms of um, <coughs> sort of making what those I, I, Sorry, um, what have I missed from the legal side of things? I mean, in terms of your experience, uh, particularly embedding sustainability in, in, in the process. Well, I think it's just making sure that you know if you're going through, through, through with an application to maybe change a listed building, obviously you've got all the different things you've got to think about. You've got to think about the planning, you've got to think about the listed building concerns, you've got to think about building regs. So many different um, consents that you might need, but there's that uncertainty as to how it's going to be treated. For, you know, the King's College Chapel is a really good example, I think, that the, my understanding, I wasn't involved, but my understanding is that the, it was not viewed warmly by the heritage officers for the council, but actually the um, committee put it through, the members put it through because they saw the sort of wider benefit. So it's quite um, sort of intangible at the moment, I think, thinking what is the public benefit? And that is very varied locally. Mark, I just wanted to come in. I think there's one thing we need to realise here. Firstly, Laura said data's incredibly important, and it is, and we've done a baseline for all our properties. There's a lot of talk about chapels. I'm afraid chapels don't emit very much carbon. So actually, if you're gonna focus on buildings, you need to look at the buildings that are emitting the most. The building that emits the most on this site is the building you're sitting in right now, bizarrely, because we have modern systems in it. The heritage buildings that emit the most on our site are the buildings that people live in because they're using heating and hot water. So whilst you can, uh, I'm sorry to be rude here, I will be rude now because it's very important. You can feel better by focusing on chapels. What we need to do is focus on the buildings where we're gonna have the greatest impact. That is where people live and to a certain extent work. Because ultimately what we're talking about is getting to net zero here. So much of that, sorry, is, to, is the behavioural piece, isn't it? It's not just the, I mean, you can put in the technology, you can put in your insulation or whatever, but um, if the students then turn up the thermostat, <laughs> you, you're losing. And, and that's exactly, that's why I spent so much time in my yeah. presentation or talk saying that, because it is so crucial. I now invite Michelle Chambers to come and seize the microphone, coloured microphone of her choice. We're going to before, I'm going to open this to the floor, but before, you know, I know you can use things like Slido or whatever they're called, but I, we, we, we used to promise to prefer the, the, uh, the classic design of the flat palm raised hand. But before we go on to actual questions, can I say to anyone here who has, who's sitting there thinking, I've got a really great story of success that I'm really proud of and I'd like to share it. If you'd like to now fling a paw in the air, we will grab some very quick words of the project you're proud of. Anybody? It's not mine, but I was at a sustainability conference yesterday and I heard about Sheffield's Great Green, which is an award-winning project which was greened part of the um, urban um, centre of Sheffield. And I did just want to ask whether any of you are thinking about greening some of your architecture. I mean, certainly we are, um, but it's not just the when you think about the architecture, you need to think about the surrounding areas as well, which is a lot of what the Sheffield Great scheme is about. Exactly, exactly. Risks of the, yeah. I, mean, it I mean, actually, if you put green roofs on, I understand the performance of them 
it's not that brilliant, but I'll look at, there are probably experts in the room who can talk about that. I, I think, think it's, it's, a, the, it's the really important. The ring road, the, the, the internal ring road of Sheffield, which they've basically created um, uh, like wildflower kind of meadows through the centre, which absorbs the water. So they've, they've kind of, they've, they've, um, a lot of the hard architecture has gone and they've kind of softened it with, with you know, soil traps for, for flooding and these wonderful um, wildflower meadows which pull in bees and apparently it's used now by, by the population of Sheffield who have literally have done a study of this, have changed their routes to work and now walk and cycle in order to experience that, that, that um, greening. So, you know, it's had an incredible impact on people's behaviour in the centre of Sheffield, how they use the centre of Sheffield. I mean, it's, at this point, and I will open up some questions, I promise, but I, I want to just bring in Nick in a very quick story. Um, Nick, uh, a few months ago, did, um, what, what was it, um, what was it, six? Oh, yeah, well, it was the six, six constituent authorities in... Uh, Nick spent the day travelling on public transport only, uh, sort of Phileas Fogg style, <laughs> between the six uh, local areas that make up his constituency. And I was invited to go along with Eastern Province. And uh, catch it, it was a Penelope pit stop style dash across Cambridgeshire, and it was only the, the some, some person pulled a, an emergency cord on a train, and as I'm saying this story, it obviously seems a lot more amusing to me than it... He does to the room. But um, uh, it pulled an emergency cord, and it was only that act, that selfless act of, of um, uh, anti socialism, anti social behaviour, that allowed me to catch up with Nick and, and uh, sp spend some time with him and talking about the importance of, of public transport. And I don't know who's used park and ride this morning? Well done. I did. Lo lovely electric buses, I must say. Yes. I, I, I mean, so go ahead. No, I'm just, I'm just, I, I, I know Sheffield quite well. That's where my, my dad comes from. So I'm, I haven't been there for some time. Um, uh, but I do know about the Sheffield. There's quite a strong green uh, representation in mm. their city council. I think actually it was a mayor was, was I think was pretty strong there. And, and, and that goes back to I think one of the questions. Well, why the hell am I here? And I think it's, you just really have to have the right kind of uh, politics who want to drive that sort of forward, be it greening, exactly. but also um, kind of, and I think that's not, every party can claim it, but you've actually then got to develop up the policies. Um, I, I'm, I'm pleasantly surprised at a national level that my party's beginning to kind of recognise there's some real benefits in that. Uh, I think, I, I won't go on to other parties, but I think at a local level, possibly with more devolution, I think a, a greater focus on, you know, nature funds, but going again to highlighting the benefits of retrofitting. And I, and I will go away from this about the, I mean, I've had the benefit of visiting Jesus before, but I hadn't really appreciated uh, Richard, just quite how much you've been as an exemplar. And I don't know if, if you are seen as the trailblazer within the college network, because if you don't know Cambridge, it's, there's Cambridge University, but actually it's how many different colleges? 31. 31 different colleges, and they've all got very different ways of approaching uh, the way that they, you know, give and uh, are, they stand within this city. Um, 
I, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm rambling. No, all, I'm, all I'm saying is I think it ultimately comes down to... I know if you all want green politicians and all the other things that come with it, then fine, that's what you vote for at a local level and a national level. But I think it's, a, it's also very much inherent on the people who are out there. You, you ask it of your politicians. And I would, I would say that is what has been seen in Cambridge City and actually across Cambridge and Peterborough. So that's, it's almost like I'd be a fool not to do it. I, I call upon you specifically because I think you've, you've walked the walk. Right. Anybody got a question? Yes, please. Do you want the mic or are you happy to bellow? No, I'm fine. Ah, right. I'm sorry, Michelle. I think you, you, you might be you might be superfluous requirements on this one. Please. My name is Sulanda. I work as a sustainability consultant, associate director in sustainability, energy and sustainability for Create Consulting Engineers. So we do a lot of planning applications uh, throughout uh, Cambridge and London, Norwich, most of this part of this uh, England. So I, I came across, you know, the building regulation that we comply with uh, for new buildings, that is uh, regulated energy. But we don't uh, focus so much on operational energy and uh, embedded carbon. So particularly for uh, buildings like heritage buildings, so there are so much uh, like you know impacts and environmental impacts pertaining to embedded carbon when you do the renovation. So we need to find figure out how much embedded carbon there, plus operational carbon. Once we know that, then easy to track tackle. So that part of building regulation has to change, particularly for existing building, which I feel that it should happen. It's happening in London for uh, major projects, but I don't see that in uh, in Cambridge or Norwich or in other areas. Could I ask a question? Is that happening in London because it's been driven by the mayor? Do you know that? Yes, yeah, mayor, mayor. So that, that would then kind yeah, that's, of... That's part of the we, London plan. We, we, we may be in for a very interesting time on devolution. But so I can just... So there are three really important elements when you're dealing with with buildings. Obviously, operational carbon, everybody tends to focus on that. Embodied carbon, you've absolutely mentioned. There's then taking a whole of life look at buildings. And we're, if there's one project we're starting to look at at the moment, we're thinking, what happens when they, we need to disassemble this building at the end of it? And that's, we need to start taking a complete look. And the planning system really s struggles with that. I'll be brutally honest, they really, really do. And, and that's where things, we have to change, but that system has to change as well. And it comes back to my point that the priorities need to change. But you're, a, the point you make is absolutely right. There is a proposal, you're probably aware, to bring in um, part Z of the building regulations, which will be all about embodied carbon and require whole life carbon assessments and things like that. So um, I don't know where that's got to, but uh, there's certainly a big movement. But it's also, um, I, I work as a Priyam assessor, so Priyam is getting updated uh, next year, early next year, so this is going to be included, which is good, good for uh, environmental performance of the buildings. Yeah, can we scrap EPCs, please? Because they're complete, <laughs> complete well, waste of time. I, I, I would love to focus on uh, this great point uh, on the things that we, the, the practical levers that we can pull together as a community, as individuals, as professionals. I'm going to call Tana. Can I just quickly check? Who here is a planning officer? I It's all right, don't be shy. <laughs> a couple of, uh, one of the back. Thank you very much. And where's Sabrina? Are, are you technically, no, you're not technically. An architect. Architect, okay, sorry. Right, sorry, Hannah. Um, just on the good news story, so along the lines of what you just raised there, so I'm working as part of the client team for Kings Lynn Library, which is, the, it's a very deep retrofit, almost to the, 
it's the deepest possible retrofit. They're stripping it back to the foundations and the, and the superstructure and then going again. But as part of that, we're doing a pre-demolition material audit and we're attempting to do a life cycle analysis from the outset, including some level of material passports. And it, it's, it's all been very early stages because Norfolk County Council has not done this before, but as a local authority, it's them as the client who are leading this process, and it's through under the new movement under Briam. So we're trying to bring in some of the things that we think we're going to come through on the new Briam because it's attempting to get to Briam outstanding, but it's being driven by the client. So the next problem then is cost. Yeah. And what where we need to get to is a situation where this becomes viable. Yes. Which is why I say we're trying. <laughs> we and we found that, as, that it's a real challenge, but we're, we think we, you can push people, and it's consultants, everybody, you need to push them very hard. It, we have to do it. We have to make it viable. Yeah. And can, can I ask where the main costs are? I mean, is it in, is it in labour, or, or is it just there's not enough of it, or is it actually material, or is it... Um... Because that's where, you know, at a, at a government level, national, again, local, you know, you have these sort of opportunities where you can bid into things. And, and that's not the easiest place because there's always losers. There's, they're always very much oversubscribed. Um, there, there's cost built in at all levels, so it depends which bits were you particularly talking about, the cost as in the, the knowledge or the cost as in the fabric? Oh, I mean everything. You start, yeah. well, you know, start from the design, it's more cost than design, it's all the way through. It's partly because the industry is just not geared up for it. Yeah. Mm. So you're trying to get them to think in a completely different way. Um, so the design teams aren't geared up for it, the supply chains aren't geared up for it, the contractors aren't geared up for it. Um, and part of this process is a really interesting one, and I will, I'll, I'll sort of, in a year and a half time, I'll be able to tell you from a lessons learned perspective. But this one has gone out to a main contractor at stage two, which is phenomenally early, in an attempt to get the um, supply chains in order. So we've got an architect on the client side, that's me, and an architect on the contractor side, and a set of targets, operational and embodied targets, which the building has to achieve. So it's an attempt to do procurement in a slightly different way. So we'll, I'll be able to tell you anything. The Entopia building on Regent Street in Cambridge, yes. absolutely, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I think a, a lot of those cost issues are about, as you say, it's, it's because we're doing things as one-offs, almost as demonstration projects or pilot projects all the time. Mm. And, and it's when th uh, things become embedded practice that the costs start to come down. A, a really good example is sustainable drainage. Um, you know, there's a requirement for sustainable drainage. It's been shown that nature-based solutions are cheaper, but the expertise isn't necessarily out there. So house builders will snap back to their engineering-based solutions because that's what they've always done. And, and you know, it's just, it's just simpler to do, always easier to do what we've always done and cheaper. Oh, yes, please, Sabrina. I think I just want to second that or third that point because having come from a, a private background in architecture as an architect and then going into the public se sector at Brooklyn Council, I think that whilst you might have politicians and and officers very much in consultants, very much in line with with sustainability and really driving that agenda and very much in, in, in West Suffolk at the moment especially that sustainability agenda is very yeah. much there. Yeah. However, the cost is the real buffer. Uh, trying to realise those projects, it's the cost is currently the the main the 
been demonstrated yet so I completely agree about the direction of travel about where we're going <coughs> that's not the experience I'm seeing on the ground and the other problem is is that when you speak to agents who are they're out there looking for tenants and the way that tenants are thinking they're still thinking in a way about what they want and they're thinking about a building that we used to design rather than we're going to design and trying to get them to move you know, we can't always build buildings of the same standard size internally with timber, for example. So we need to rethink those things. And that's, it, it's as much to do with that as the fact that, yes, you can get more rent. And yes, your buildings will, will be more lettable. I'm just going to shout out to Will and Carter Jonas, property <laughs> expert. Do you have a thought, sir? Well. Sorry to pick on you. <laughs> so um, I'm not seeing either. I'm seeing it going in that direction. I'm not seeing a premium as such at the moment for green buildings. But that's more probably to do with the way the buildings are scored in terms of their performance, as opposed to um, uh, the, 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 yeah, the clients that wanting those buildings. And it comes back to this EPC business as well about whether that's the right metrics, because developers and landlords focus on greenhouse. Freehand's different systems to EPCs. Occupiers focus on EPCs. When you find a letter building, they want to know is the building an AEPC. And if it's a warehouse, it's got no heating, it's got a little bit of lighting, of course it's going to be an A. It'll make it a sustainable building. So I think it's going in the right direction. But office buildings is more difficult because there is a push towards hybrid working. Now it does mean that occupiers are going to reduce their floor weight. And as part of that, they want to know that their overheads are going to reduce as well. And having a sustainable building in that respect obviously is going to be an advantage. So I think it's going in that direction, but I'm not saying it's percent premium yet. There is there's also a big problem with lack of um, supply in terms of the really high quality sort of EPCA rated um, office space. There just isn't anywhere enough in the demand. I um, don't want to hold anyone back from a cup of coffee in the comfort. Oof. So has anybody got some very last I I'm just conscious that I don't want to. St oh yes, sir. Please. Sorry. Sorry. Um, I just had a question. It's probably for Dr. Richard Dunsby, um about monitoring and data and the importance of tracking and understanding the performance of buildings. Um, because we've spoken about the um, embodied and operational carbon. We spoke about the end of life. But in terms of lessons learned and for someone that's that got obviously. This Progressive program of buildings, and um, how important do you think data is 
and understanding the performance of what you've built. It's absolutely critical and you have to start there and that's why the first thing we've done is the baseline. The second thing we've discovered is that um, you know, in parts of our college, we've got one meter for one gas boiler that does a huge court. <laughs> so trying to measure performance is really, so that's another thing, sub-metering. The other thing is obviously, and it's one of the things that comes through to tenants and we, what you put in leases, we try to get data for all the buildings that we let and we can't get a lot of the data because we can't get it for the tenants. They're not obliged to give it to us. So we're looking at ways we can put stuff in leases. Can we oblige them to have our, you know, our, um, smart metering in so we can actually get the data. So it is absolutely fundamental because it allows you to focus on things and allows you to prioritise. I'm not going to pick on the planners in the room, but one thing I'm conscious of is that it's a very difficult balance because as much as we as individuals, as professionals, might like to support local authorities, so, you know, help them with you know, the, the, the fact that they're, under, they're so badly stretched, and that we, you know, the professionals in the room can help them with that. There's also a, a political flip side to that, which is, oh, hang on a minute, why are you taking advice from all these people? Who... And I, I, I'm just really conscious that we, that we, we, we not <laughs> try and, between us, ourselves, shop around for a, pl a better planning system, because none of us can deliver that, uh, not at the moment anyway, but find an optimum solution within the, the systems that we have. Um, and that was a really sour note to end on, I'm very sorry. Uh, but can I just ask you, before you go for a coffee, to express your appreciation for this wonderful panel. Thank you ever, ever so much, everyone, for, for being so fantastically uh, open to the discussion. I re really enjoyed seeing you all sort of chip in, and, and, and frankly, the less I had to say, the better. Um, right, this is, our, this is a second panel, which in many ways is just a, con a continuation of the, uh, of the first panel with a new all-star cast, who I am now... You, you, the bios are in the, in the brochures, but I'm going to ask them from Jareen Irwin onwards along the panel to introduce themselves. Always me first. Um, Sorry. So, <laughs> so I'm Doreen. Uh, I'm an architect uh, based in Norwich for Chapman Varent. Um, and I work on a lot of sort of creative reuse and regeneration of existing buildings um, with a different hat on. Uh, I also represent architects in the East region as the chair of Reba East. Um, and uh, yeah, really happy to be here today and uh, yeah, really lucky to work on projects at the moment that are so once-in-a-lifetime type projects for the clients. A lot of them are local authorities, um, some beautiful heritage ones, some less so, and it's all about creative reuse of those spaces. Nathan. Hello, um, I am Nathan Blowers, civil structural engineer at uh, Canham Consulting in Norwich, um, director of the special projects team. Um, we focus on the, the word special, um, is sort of anything weird and wonderful uh, energy sector uh, we do uh, bulk of our work is temporary works um, which is a, a tricky sort of um, uh, way um, a method in um, heritage buildings when we're trying not to damage anything um, I'm keen to see sustainability and uh, low carbon options in um, the training and development of younger engineers so mentoring um, it's quite a passion of mine, and um, 
I'm going to share hopefully a bit later on what sort of the Institute of Civil Engineers and Structural Engineers are doing about it. Thank you. Hey, uh, hello everyone. I'm Tom Randall Green. I moved it slightly. Uh, no, no, no. <laughs> I'm the uh, head of sustainability at Carter Jonas. So I wear two hats in that firm. I help Carter Jonas on its own journey towards being a truly sustainable enterprise, and I also work to support my colleagues, so generally chartered surveyors, chartered planners, property experts, into integrating sustainability into the service offers we've been delivering to our clients for 160 plus years. So my background is largely around strategic integration of sustainability into business strategies. So previously I was at a large global property business, helping them think about net zero, actually what that looks like at an organizational level. Of course, property buildings are a huge component of that for, for anyone. So, to be here. Uh, my name's Hannah Wooler. Um, I run a not-for-profit architectural um, company uh, looking primarily at existing buildings. Well, almost exclusively at existing buildings. I do do new build, but usually in the context of... Um, I'm a great interferer in buildings, an advocate for the retrofit. Um, I, as well as running Matter of Place, I'm a non-executive director of Active Norfolk, and it's the active environments agenda. So what you were talking about, Sheffield and greening, it's the role that architects can play in the sort of, in the design and visualization of the way that we use our cities. I also sit on the Business Climate Leaders Board for Norfolk Chamber of Commerce, and I'm on two different, very different trusts. One for Out There Arts, who have just uh, pushing forward an amazing uh, retrofit and reuse project for the Ice House in Great Yarmouth, um, which is a, a, be a fantastic cultural centre. And that's a building that's been very underused that they're bringing back into community use. But on the other side, I sit on the board for um, the Quakers looking at their large, interesting, and incredibly problematic estate. So um, I, I sort of, I see, I more often deal with buildings as problems that I can help solve rather than assets. <laughs> so. William. Hi everybody, I'm Gwilym from Max Fordham. So we're a practice of uh, MEP, acousticians, passive house designers, sustainability consultants and so on. Uh, I'm involved in the passive house team and lead that but with a background in MEP. Uh, and I think I'm largely here from my experience from the Entopia project at One Regent Street and some other projects we've been lucky enough to do work with Jesus and with uh, you know, Trinity and other colleges around Cambridge as well and do some interesting work there. Uh, Jareen, I'm going to come back to you again and just say we've got this illustration here that everyone will have both on the screen and in your packs. Do you want to just talk us through it or if you you know have some uh, thoughts from the previous session but Talk, talk, where, where do you think we should begin, I suppose, is the real question. Well, actually, if we're talking about beginnings, there's a conversation uh, Hannah and I were having that when we were initially talking about what do we th think was the most important messages to get across today, um, I think this is more of a question actually for Hannah. In terms of fundamentally, right at the beginning of a project, what is the most important thing? Understanding your building. So that's where, yeah, that's where we need to start, and that's a huge change from where we have been. If you're going to be working with listing bu listed buildings, existing buildings, any building, you have to understand the physical, contextual and um, legal con um, 
properties of your building. Um, so. And then part of the con that conversation was about making sure that if you are the client procuring that building, investing in that at that time, understanding that it takes to understand the building, it takes a long time to do that. So like, this, is, as an example, is... Uh, the examples I've used are two of my favourite projects I'm working on at the moment, and both completely different. So this building is a former department store in the middle of a high street um, that has it's about 5,000 square metres in total floor area. And we didn't really know... It, it sat empty during COVID, and then people were trying to figure out what to do with it. And what you ended up with was a group of people, which included the local authority, uh, in included the county council, um, it included some of the education sort of, uh, providers in the area. And what we're redoing with this building is it's going to be a new public library, so they're relocating that. Uh, it's also going to be a university centre, so it taps into uh, lots, of, uh, lots of different sort of aspects about what you can creatively do with the building. Uh, it's been hard work. We are about two and a half years in and we have just started on site. That takes a huge... There's a lot of people involved. Uh, there's a lot of funding that had to be found. There's a lot of conflicting interests. And at a practical level, reusing a building that had a very different previous use is really, really tricky to change. And this one, a department store, it's big, it's open, you can move around the space building where uh, you're going to have potentially five or six different tenants in it means we have to separate it and we have to put divisions in place and it's now a public building and the regulatory frame framework around that is completely different um, and we've spent a lot of time with fire officers um, and a lot of time uh, with people that know a lot more than I do about how to make sure it's still going to be there in 50 years' time, that we can accommodate all those uses, um, and that it's still going to be you know, beautiful and well-used and part of the community. Um, it's, yeah, it, I cannot, under, cannot underestimate how difficult it is to do these things, but I cannot wait until it is occupied. It's going to be amazing. It's literally in the middle of the high street. The education providers are bringing universities to the doorstep of people. They're, how more sustainable can that be? It is in the middle of the town. It's in the middle of the high street. Uh, and actually, it's a, it's a really exciting project to be a part of. I was just wondering where that's It's in Great Yarmouth. Oh. So can I ask Tom at this point? Because um, have you got any sort of early thoughts on, on, on what you've heard and from your point of view in, in, in uh, sustainability and property? I, think, I mean, it's sort of self-evident and tied in about what's already been said, but I think the importance of designing in sustainability from the outset, that you need to have that as a guiding principle for any type of project, so you're always going to compromise the quality of the outcomes that you're going to get. So thinking at you know, the types of materials that are going to be used, design, trying to embed circularity, actually in the way that the project has uh, been gone about as an overarching aim, I think is really key. Otherwise, um, it, it's always going to be tricky. And, of mm. course, it all comes down to data in a way um, when you're actually thinking about performance. So trying to put in measures to capture the information you need to evidence the performance of the building over time. If you want to make any claims around that, um, you need to do that really early on. Um, of course, your potential tenants, potential if you're thinking about selling on, your potential customers down the line are going to want to see that stuff. So. Mm think about it at the outset and as early as possible, I would say. Mm. 
Uh, yeah, so on that, there's a great graph that quite a lot of us have seen here, which so, shows the um, financial implications of when you make decisions around sustainability. So what we were talking about earlier about what Norfolk County Council are trying to do about Kings Lynn Library, which is a parallel project. So we're doing parallel projects at either end of the county. <laughs> so we'll see. It'll be really interesting in a year and a half's time to see how they're all panning out. But um, if you try and make the big decisions about what you want to achieve at the at the outset, the implications can be as low as a 10% uplift on a standard delivery costs. However, if you're trying to make, if you're trying to change a building from a standard delivery to passive house post planning, the, uh, the uplifting cost in what it turns in, in retrospective design fees, in changing the implications of restarting processes and over the programme and on specification are, you know, they're, they're, they're multiplying on an almost um, logarithmic scale. So um, if you're going, and we are all going to be, have to be building sustainably, that's the thing. It's no longer a choice for us. It's, it's how we get there, not when we get there. So making people, informing the clients and making those decisions early is the way to get the best outcomes for these projects. And what we were talking earlier is so many of them are exemplars, but we need to be doing these exemplars so that we can work out what are the standards that we can start to employ on a more general position. I'm deeply conscious that I'll come to your things, Stacey. I was just going to say, I'm deeply conscious that I think a lot of you got more out of the, the actual ability to sort of interact in the room and, and, and have a sort of fairly free-flowing discussion. So I want to move to that uh, as quickly as, as, as possible. But I'd just like to bring in Gwilym at this point and then come to Nathan, because <laughs> Nathan had to, had obviously had points he wanted to make. We heard a lot in the first session about... We heard a lot in the first session about um, kinks and the PV kinks. I know that's something you, you were involved in. Do you want me to skip to your, to your particular... Yeah, if we just canter through something really quickly then. So, you know, the Intopia project, which is for, um, which is for the Cambridge Institute of Sustainability Leadership... Uh, oh, good man. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, so this is what it looks like now. It's on the high streets. For those who don't think uh, Cambridge, it's pretty central. It's got probably the most exciting, complicated, overlapping Venn diagram of a brief that I've ever worked on, which is brilliant. <laughs> Um, but you can see it's, it's picking on the different sustainability frameworks and using each one of those for the things that they're good at rather than trying to expect one, one framework to be an overarching, you know, complete approach. Uh, I won't chat too much about these, but there, there was a kind of whole building approach. It was really exciting, as uh, I think, from the discussions earlier about how far the client was keen to push things and to engage and to then drive the design team and the contractor when they came on board and so on to follow through and to look for interesting solutions. Uh, this is what the building looked like partway through strip out, so not the most glamorous. It's a 1930s former telephone exchange. Um, but it's been fairly heavily reworked with its own vent system to start with and so on. Um, the finished building looks really nice from our take. The insides are really like, light, airy, and enjoyable from that point of view. So it hasn't been like sustainability at the cost of it's a crappy place on the inside. It's been both bits together. They did make some choices like going for largely, you can see in here, sort of exposed raised access floors because the impact of the carpet was shown to be really high on the embodied carbon side of things. There were some interesting synergies as well, I think. So, like on, so we got rid of gas from the building. I freed up a boiler room on the roof. 
the roof was turned into a rooftop terrace for the clients, the PVs are mounted on a canopy, the metalwork for that is reclaimed from the Avengers movie set somehow. I mean, that's a, yeah, it's a finite resource, but it's nice to do that sort of thing if you can. And actually, that's also made a really nice amenity space in the summertime case, because then you don't have the sun beating down on you on this exposed terrace space. Uh, we've got some HVAC in there. I think if I skip through, that's, I mean, that's the kind of the proof in the pudding side of it, and that previously the building was up at, you know, in the several hundreds of kilowatt hours per square meter per year usage. What we're looking like after the first while of meter readings, and we're just sort of getting through the end of the first year and straightening it all out, is around 45 or so kilowatt hours per square meter a year. It's probably slightly low because occupancy has been a bit lower because you know, the initial design was pre-pandemic and then we had a different approach to working and so on. So there's some interesting questions, I think, for all of us to work through about what metrics are you really benchmarking against? Use this one, which rewards low occupant density. Do you do something per person as well? That's probably a useful thing to look at. Um, but yeah, the final result has been really positive from our point of view. And I think that ties back to this discussion about you know, are we picking single exemplars or are we trying to set something which then becomes a much more standardized approach and is rolled out everywhere? And then very quickly, I thought the King's College Chapel was interesting and the point from earlier about planning was interesting, I think, that both you know, on the chapel, which everybody knows, <coughs> there's loads of PVs going on stat, which is brilliant. Yes, from an individual building point of view, that's probably not the place to focus your effort in terms of saving energy, but in terms of having a good roofscape to put renewables onto, it's a good location. And on both this and on the Entopia project, there were cases where both the client committed early on to doing what they thought was the right thing rather than the easy thing to get through planning. And the planners took a holistic view of it rather than just taking the objections of the heritage officer and saying, okay, we're not going to do it then. So the windows on Entopia was a similar thing where the client kind of committed to pushing through what they thought was the best overall environmental solution rather than just the easiest ride through planning. And then also just to finish off from mine, this is a, an older project of ours at Trinity Newcourt, which was, I think, exciting for us to see actually what was possible on a you know, grade one listed building and that you could bring it up to a really good modern standard. You could do internal wall insulation. You could manage the moisture risk. You could replace the glazing. Uh, and you could give something that just looks like a really nice and contemporary building. And a lot of that can be rolled back to restore the original if you want to afterwards. So. Thank you, Gordon. Um, I'm conscious that I made Stacey wait to make a point. <laughs> That's OK. <laughs> um, I'm just curious about the various options for sustainability that you consider for buildings. Because 10, 15 years ago, everyone thought biomass boilers was the way forward. And as you know, technology changes so quickly. And if projects take years and years in the design stage before we can get to the building stage, you know, how do you consider what is the best solution? I mean, you know, where, where are the PV panels the best solution for King's College? Um, you know, the first was talking about how here they were doing um, ground source heat pumps. You know, not everybody has that amount of land, you know, and it, I know this is not a one size fits all, but I'm just wondering, technology moves so fast and what you think might work well today in 10, 15, 20 years, and how do you forecast? There's a, there's a couple of things. One is um, 
understanding again it's the same message again and again but understanding the particular context of your building so if you're looking at fabric upgrades for your building there's been huge amounts of learning in the conservation of traditional buildings so it's looking at a lot of application of knowledge that we've had through conservation but taking it into the sort of future world of decarb there's a great resource which is the stba wheel which is fantastic for the actual fabric upgrades and looking at the sort of interdependencies of those moves but when it comes to technologies it's about minimum harm and maximum reversibility because you will never there will always be a next thing and so what you've got to do is like in the instance of the pvs on the roof there yes put them on yes understand but understand the life cycle implications of them so don't be if, if the roof is not strong enough to take them then they wouldn't they shouldn't be going on there because they may not be the long-term answer so you, and one of the really interesting things that um, you said was about the heating of people and i think that that's where we're going to be moving towards i think space heating is probably coming to an end we've been used to space heating buildings but i think that time is within the next generation will be finished so we will be looking at heating people and their usability of the space okay let's argue about that yeah no i don't um I think that one, that one depends on the building typology, I think. So where you have got a church or something where the occupancy is really intermittent, where it doesn't make sense to try to put a huge amount of embodied carbon into the fabric, then doing localised heating and making the people comfortable completely makes sense. Where you've got buildings which are going to have prolonged or extended occupancy and you know, the massing of the building is efficient, so you know, like the Entopia and so on, then I think it's easier to heat the entire space once you've done the fabric, so the losses are going to be low, and it's simpler to do that, and it makes it also you know, an easier sell for people who are trying to offer different spaces for different people, that you're not saying, yeah, come to the Eco One, where like three jumpers sit here, we're going to put your panel yeah. on you. I, I think there, it's interesting, and I, I think you're right. There will be different solutions for different places, but it's, it's the weighing up embodied carbon because actually, at the moment, we're learning loads about deep retrofit. But it may be that deep retrofit isn't the answer for a lot of buildings because the amount of embodied carbon that it takes to bring the building up to uh, a fully sort of benefit level is more than you can justify. So one of the one of the terrifying facts about embodied carbon is that 100 mil of PIR put into a building takes 80 years to pay back on the savings that it can, it, well not always, but it can take 80 years to pay back in situ. And we're not, modern buildings aren't designed for 80 years lifespan. So you're, you're building redundancy into the embodied carbon that you're putting into the building. So we just need to make sure that the future use of the building is Justified. Sorry, Hannah, PIR. For the uh, sorry. Um, Highly flammable petrochemical insulation. So that's excellent case Yeah. Yeah. It's not just about heating, it's about cooling as well. Because modern new builds, I know people that are sleeping downstairs during the summer because it's too hot in these modern new build homes. That's less of a problem in the historic buildings. About cooling demand and how the building is going to behave in different climate change scenarios. So the, there is a requirement for particularly for residential building to comply with part O, which is overheating risk assessment. You do the modeling with at different climate change scenario, different temperature, and see how your rooms are behaving. Then you develop strategies 
different type of strategies, go one by one and see how each strategy is working to reduce the heat, uh, reduce the overheating uh, risk. So that's how you demonstrate that your building is complying with not only now, in 2080, 2050 and 2080, when the weather changes. So there, is, there are some uncertainties, but in science there are uncertainties. You have to take into consideration, but you do your best to minimize the risk by doing so. And coming to your other question about uh, how in, you have now designed with solar PV, and then in future, in 10 years, when uh, what are you going to do? Because technology is evolving, but then you are bound by the planning conditions. So your planning uh, application is submitted now. By the time you do the actual de design, it's uh, and uh, you know construct. It would be late, like in uh, maybe a year. But uh, you you are supposed to do what the planning application. Uh, you know what what are the conditions are. So you have to stick to that. I've I've got a couple of points, and maybe yeah, could, so, could I just before, I'll bring you back in, and I just I wanted to. Let Tom and Jereen come in if they want to, and we'll come to Nathan in a second because I know he had points to make. <laughs> but I think the points were really well made. You know, design okay. to a future upgrade—that's key. I mean, it's essentially it's circularity, isn't it? That's what you're thinking about how you how you're refurbishing and upgrading a building in a way that you're sort of future-proofing it. I mean, PV efficiencies come on cost efficiency, but performance efficiency massively. It's the same technology, but better. So how do you? actually um, make sure you're designing to be able to swap swap out, basically. Yeah. I think the point about risk is really important, climate yeah. risk, adaptations. Uh. Green, any? Um, I think in an ideal world, standardisation is key. We're all on the same hymn sheet, and you can use sort of bigger sort of planning policies to help instigate that. But it's really important that, from my point of view, each building and each site is actually quite different and you can only do your best and that might change in the future. But so long as you are trying and you are engaging and you're trying to do the very best you can, you may not be 100% successful. But so long as you're trying to do it, you are making those improvements. Can I honestly say that all the buildings I've had have done the absolute, you know, is, is it perfect? No, it's not. Could it be better? Absolutely it could. But have we tried our best within the limitations of what we've got to get the best building out of it? And yes, we have. Good, I'll bring you in quickly and then I'll, I'll, I'll let Nathan have his, have his point, which he's waited very patiently for. <laughs> um, so I, I think on the kind of choosing technology side, there's a couple of bits, I guess. One is, you know, the, from project to project, there's a different turnaround time. So the King's one, from, you know, from inception to having the PVs on the roof, that's a relatively short thing compared to a whole building retrofit where you do have to do the investigative work. And I think there's a pretty low chance that they're going to regret having the PVs on the roof once they're up and running. Um, I think there is a general, there are like some consistent themes across retrofit and new, but aren't there about you know, adoption of electricity in some form, about thinking about demand management and those sorts of things. So I think there are some of those where it's not completely future, like guaranteed for the future because nothing is, but you'd be fairly happy following them and being happy that it will work in the future fairly well, even if it's not the optimum. Um, there's, a, there's very few cases, I think, where people regret using less stuff as well. So as a general principle, that's quite good. And the, the summer comfort side of it is interesting because I... I think there are some limitations to you know, Parto, TM59, et cetera. All, they basically say test your design for 
a warm current climate, about one in seven years will be as hot or hotter than that. And they don't ask anybody to, or they don't force anybody to test for future climates and to explain that to a client. Because I think if you have a discussion which says, I've seen how your building will do for a warm year and it's fine. I've tested it for a year that's likely to start from 2040, or I've tested it for something which is a more extreme current heat wave and it fail, fails catastrophically. Are you happy? That's one discussion. <laughs> Whereas if you say, I've tested this using SIBSI TM59 with a DSY1 2020's high emissions 50th percentile and it passes, I think what happens is you kind of black out halfway through that sentence and hear the word passes at the end. Think, okay, great. You know, the professional has told me it passes, so it's okay. So I think some of those. And it kind of comes back to that discussion earlier as well. I think you know, planning requirements, building regs and stuff are fine, but everybody here should be treating that as that's the worst you can legally do to build rather than that's the exemplar that we should aspire to. Nathan, thank you for your patience. Okay. <laughs> Go for it. No problem. Um, I was just going to add to that, just say that uh, with other consultants, we have a huge responsibility to influence um, likes of architects and design on the materials we use and where they come from. Um, we should be right from the outset, and I agreed with the other panel that you, know, you need to start a bit like the triangle really is, first of all, is build nothing. You know, if you're going into an old building, you're taking a load bearing wall out and it needs a beam, well, do you need to take that wall out? Do you, can you take that wall out that doesn't need a beam? Um, it's those little, little things that all add up. On a particular project in Lowestoft that we're looking at is um, an old uh, concrete car park uh, frame, concrete frame, where half the car park has uh, sort of suffered with carbonisation, which is where it's sort of eating into the concrete, reduces the pH level, and then it can corrode the, the steel reinforcement. So that half has been demolished, and the other half is we're going to look to reuse that. And working with Dreen's colleagues, coming up with a sort of a a new cultural development. That car park, you're not going to get any existing structural information. So you're not going to have there's a lack of drawings. Um, you're going to need to do intrusive investigations. So there is a bit of risk there. Some of the clients aren't aware of that risk. But there might be opportunities where that concrete has, put simply, sucked in the CO2, very small levels. I read somewhere it was 30% sort of of carbonisation in some instances of um, what it actually costs in carbon to make the concrete. What you can then do, hopefully on this site, is that we can use that brushed concrete as aggregate, but then speaking to the design team, which is what we must do, is, and I know there's some contractors in the room, is that we might not be able to reuse that aggregate or we might, uh, we might have space to do it. Um, so it's, I think, Communication and working on the, the sort of the triangle of do nothing first and then maybe yeah, build less, build clever, and then as per the other panel, at the end, you know, offsetting is. <laughs> it is because it's we've already offset all the carbon there is to offset, so it is cheating. Like you can get you can get other benefits from offsetting carbon, so there can be community benefits and there can be international benefits, but it's not going to be carbon that you're offsetting. Mm. Anymore, Johanna, you you had a, a, a thought. No, no, no. Because if it, we just we are recording this for the Eastern Promise podcast. If you don't use the mic, we will not hear you. Okay, hi everybody. 
I have two questions, but I'm going to ask one and then I'm going to hand it directly to Joe. I'm going to ask the other one because we were just discussing it quietly. So I have a question about timescales. So you mentioned seven years. Now, the climate models will be projecting to about 2050 mostly. It used to be 2030, but we're getting quite close to that. Um, but let's say 2050. So why choose seven years when if you're trying to build something that's going to manage within a projection of what seven years, you're already behind before you begin? Okay, sorry. So the standard weather files that you're asked to use for minimum compliance, it isn't projecting four years. It's saying that on average, one in seven years will be as hot or hotter. And the projection period is over 2010 to 2040. So that's the minimum for compliance. And then there are available weather files all the way out to 2100. But the compliance requirement isn't to test or report against those. It's just to do it for a current warm but not super hot summer. So it's, we've got projects where we've done the modelling, the testing, and run it out for the future scenarios because we would like to understand that for our buildings. But there's a gap in there between what some people are doing in modelling, reporting, and talking to clients on projects and what a minimum compliance approach looks like. And that comes back as well to working with good clients. So if you, the, I've worked on projects where they've done future projections, but it's when you're working for clients like... Jesus, or in my, in my instance, University of Manchester, because the client requires you to do that future projection. Um, otherwise, it's very easy to just do the basic level. Yes, thank you. Hi, I'm Jo Clark, and I'm actually not an architect. I'm a heritage specialist. And I'm interested that throughout this panel and the previous panel, what you've been talking about is modern techniques, modern technologies, modern refits. Do any of you work with old technologies and, and try and train people in some of what are actually really sustainable, many of them, you know, compared to, say, cement, if you use old limes, that kind of thing? So I, I'm just interested in that. Yeah, I think it's become a lot more widespread. I don't know, we'll pass over. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm conservation trained, so that's what I do. But I think for, for us, for, do you want to speak? Because you're not conservation trained. So it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, um, I think that, yes, we do. There are definitely projects where you make sure if you don't have the knowledge, you have somebody on the team that does. And every project takes a team. Uh, and we can't know everything. There are some amazing people, a lot of which I can actually see in the room, have that knowledge. So, yes, traditional techniques, traditional ways of conserving buildings. It's quite hard to get that level of expertise, but it's there and it exists. And there's a lot of like, very skilled people uh, in the construction industry. Um, it, start, it does actually, it starts with the client. So clients are like the, the most important person, I think, sometimes in a team in that they set out their stall early. They tell you whether they want minimum compliance or whether they want to do more. But who's informing and who's helping to teach the clients to show them what they should be aiming for? Um, and you, it's difficult, I think, if you have a client that has made up their mind about a certain thing. Well, so long as it passes building rates, it's fine. I remember a client saying, I don't care if it's made out of tinfoil, so long as I can rent it out. Those are necessary, those kind of, there's, there's very big changes in, in there's, a big, there's a broad spectrum. Um, but absolutely, especially older buildings, using older techniques. And I know there's a lot of research into using older techniques, but in new buildings. Is, yeah. Um, 
Oh, sorry, as an ex example, um, a recent project in a malting factory, where it's an old um, Victorian brick building, um, concrete screeded timber floors with cast iron columns, big oak timber beams, beautiful place. Um, and it's suffered with moisture damage, corrosion of the steel uh, columns, and, and the client were, we're just going to chuck a steel frame in. And, you know, I was thinking, hang on a minute. <laughs> Let's bring it back to, you know, repair the timber, um, you know, new big oak beams, new timber joists, put it back to how it was, you know, don't just go straight in with a steel frame, you know, because that's, again, that's cheap. It's, <laughs> I'm gonna, um, we've got a question from the floor, and I'm just conscious to bring Tom in at some point. Andrew. Yep. Um, lowering the tone somewhat, but coming back to a point that was made earlier about the benefits for embodied carbon in reusing existing historic buildings. Um, we have, as somebody mentioned, an improbably large number of churches in Norfolk, for example. Um, I'm sure that I'm not the only person in the room who dreads making any suggestion about any change to building fabric in one of these buildings so that we can reuse these other, many of these redundant buildings um, because either the conservation officer or Historic England will say no, or the design team assume that Historic England will say no. Can anyone on the panel suggest a way that we can actually make these people part of the solution rather than part of the problem, which is how they're seen at the moment? Who's going to take that one? <laughs> Uh, I'm looking at you, Gwillem. Oh, you, you, you look like you're, you're, you're chomping at the bit to answer that one. Uh, yeah, thanks. Uh, I think we've, we've had successful engagement with them on projects like uh, the Trinity Newcourt one, where that was, you know, that's messing with a grade one building. It's obviously a very significant building. And there was quite a lot of dialogue back and forth, I think, particularly around you know, the moisture risk side of it and understanding that. And when the client and team, I think, were prepared to engage enough to say, here's the work to show that we have actually considered this fully. Um, this kind of touches to your question about traditional techniques a bit as well. And that it, it, wasn't, it wasn't completely traditional approaches, but it did use like a lime mortar as a, a parge coat on the inside of the build-up and a wood fibre insulation on the inside, which is a slightly you know, lower in body carbon approach, that they were happy to go along with that on the basis that there's then got to be a significant amount of monitoring afterwards to show that what's been done has worked. So I don't have like a, a perfect solution for it, but I think coming with an approach that says, we can show we have considered some different options. We've not just assumed a cookie cutter solution to this. Um, I think there is also a role for, for you know, like the Church of England and so on to play in this, and that there are people with that larger state who can then try to engage on a basis which isn't just saying, I've got this one really fiddly project, can I get someone to overturn precedent for this particular project, but be able to engage and say, can we talk about accepting a sensible approach for this wider estate? And I think that's probably where part of the discussion needs to happen. There's a great principle for that. Um, I, I was trying to remember when I was sitting down earlier where it is, but I think it's um, Kensington and Chelsea, but it might be Westminster, where they've got an SPD now, um, which they've enacted, which says you can put PVs on any building up to and including Raid 2 listed, as long as it's not on the primary facade. And that's been brought through at a political level. And that's what we need, is that kind of, that's bringing it through, because, for instance, in Norwich, the whole city centre is a conservation area, and that is causing 
it's just an automatic barrier to the installation of PVs. But in other places, they are finding ways through. So it's looking for those routes through to advocate for sustainability in the heritage environment. Tom, as a property specialist, what, what, do, you, what do you think? Oh, yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, Gwilym's point about, you know, organisations with large holdings of heritage buildings and the way that they are setting objectives. I mean, it's interesting, a lot of conversation about purpose. The purpose of the Church of England is pretty clear. Um, they are fully committed to delivering net zero. They're fully to deliver, uh, committed to delivering on commitments around nature, biodiversity, and actually if they're going to be successful um, in uh, realising those ambitions, there needs to be a, a way through to address building stock. And making, you know, I'm sure everyone in this room I hope would agree that actually creating this change in the types of buildings that we own and occupy is an imperative for all of us. Um, so being able to go in and make a very strong case um, as an organisation outstanding is really key in getting those kinds of sort of policy decisions um, and so just some common sense about the, the direction we all need to go in. I mean, ultimately, do you want these assets to be invested in and improved and used, or are they going to sit there and be devalued because they're not fit? I'll bring Hannah in a second. Stuart. Thank you. And just, just building on that point, um, so Stuart, the domestic bursar at Jesus, uh, Richard spoke earlier about the size of our estate, and it is really challenging to get things through. It's also, and that getting things through is both you know, local authority, but it's also college communities. And really what large landholders like colleges are lacking is a series of case studies that are endorsed and supported by trade bodies, industry, planning. So we can go through our college governance process. We can make significant applications because we literally own streets. Streets of houses, and, and, and that I don't mean to sound arrogant in any way, that's just the reality, it's the nature of what we do. So the scale of change and the, the administration burden that comes with that is crippling. And so having the data, and, and Trinity would be interesting, because I know the, the you know, authority insisted that everything could be reversed if it didn't work. How many years data is enough data to say, this is the right solution, yeah. well, let's use that as the case study. Yeah. If other colleges or, or, or property owners want to follow the same methodology, you're not paying for all that design cost again, adding to, the, to that bottom line, you can accelerate through planning and you can actually get stuff done. And so for me, a collaborative relationship where people are working together right across all bodies is, is what we're lacking in, in a place like Cambridge. And I think that would accelerate change, would accelerate the, the, the speed with which we can make a difference. Um, so the colleges do work very collaboratively the local consultants work together but there is an element of reinventing the wheel and applying every single time which which can be really quite difficult um, and i think finally the speed of evolution of technology um, the colleges we're in it for the long haul as, as richard said we build a kitchen with a view to it's going to be here for centuries um, and having confidence and trust in the technology you know being here after we're gone is is quite tricky um, so we see ourselves as custodians. So it, it is a very, very difficult, complex matter, but the speed with which we, we can make changes is just not fast enough. And the, there is a challenge in there, I think, in there, in that it's, it's often easier for an individual project for planning to write things in a way that says, we're not disputing your policy at all, but this is a very localised exception where we think these project-specific considerations mean you should accept this. Whereas what you really want in the, like, the wider community benefit is to say, actually, this should just be the, the default approach, like you were saying with those cases, of just saying, 
this approach is fine and we can roll it out in as long as you know, criteria A, B and C apply. Two things on a yeah. on a sort of systematic 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 level. Neither of these are the answer, but both of them I think are positive developments. One is the PAS two o three five PAS two o three eight framework, which is um, clear guidance on best practice for retrofit. PAS two o three five is domestic, and PAS two o three eight is commercial, and all of them have in traditional te techniques. So any building before nineteen nineteen is judged to be a traditional building and for that you are looking at applying traditional techniques and using breathability of the fabric as a main concern, looking at moisture travel and doing huge amounts of investigation in the building up front. Um, they have dis different risk paths which take the buildings through for the different levels. It could be a real game changer for how the industry works. It, there is always a risk with these that they get commercialised and become a quick route for quick and easy win retrofit, which doesn't provide all the benefits we're looking for. So I think they will be tested over the next few years. And the other one, which I quickly wanted to touch on is Neighbours, which I'm really interested in, which is an alternative and more holistic replacement for the EPC, um, which has been more, as I understand it, more comprehensively tested and comes from Australia, which I think is really amusing that we have <laughs> two different exports from Australia, both neighbours. <laughs> it's spelt very differently. <laughs> I have to say, someone not in the industry, I was, I was slightly lost there when you started talking with neighbours. I was thinking, yeah, it's and then when it's from Australia, I was like, no, I've, lo I've got a lot somewhere in this <laughs> it's, conversation. It's N-A-B-E-R-S, and it looks at how your building really performs. So rather than an EPC, which has a huge performance gap from what they say your building does to how it actually performs, neighbours actually gets... You, you, you say how it's going to work and then you get tested and then you prove how it is working and it's like an operational record of how your building's functioning. I'm deeply conscious... I'll, I'll come to you in a second. I'm just deeply conscious that we've sort of... Their timing's gone a bit out of the world. Oh, no. <laughs> and so I was just going to take a quick public vote. Is everyone sufficiently rested and comfortable that they'd like to just crack on and, and, and really open this up to the full discussion? Or is anyone desperate for a caffeine fix slash bathroom break. Can I have a, a, a quick vote for cracking on? Oh, the, the cracking on. <laughs> cracking on. The eyes have it, as, as, as they say. Right. Yeah, I have hang on, hang on. We want to hear you on the podcast. So you all were uh, talking about existing building. I have two new projects, new building, new construction projects, and two challenging projects. One in Cambridge. The local plan says you have to achieve uh, the water uh, use efficiency of 110 litres per person per day. And the council's condition is to have BRIAM excellent for commercial building and community space. And there is another condition they have put that your water has to be excellent, like uh, outstanding level BRIAM, which is really, really tight and practically not possible for that type of building. And uh, it's, it's a challenge for us as consultant how to do this project because you, you are achieving BRIAM excellent and at the same time your water efficiency has to be much above that. And from practical point of view, it is not not that much beneficial for the client, like to spend that much money and you know have problems later. This is one project. Another project we have in Essex, which is a listed building, and they're uh, going to convert it to a medical center. It's part of University of Essex. Their target is Briam, uh, very good. But again, you have limitation with fabric. You can't do much changes. You can't do any changes, touch the fabric. You have to achieve certain level of energy efficiency. So 
as a consultant, you have to find your way around to find what are the best solution for this case. You have to have the target to meet as well as, you know, the client should get the maximum benefit out of it. So, yeah, they, these are interesting uh, projects. So I don't know. We are developing strategy for it in coming weeks. So hopefully we're going to address this. We have had a few projects where, particularly in Cambridge, the planners have accepted, say, passive house certification and um, some other bespoke sustainability measures to address the things that they're particularly concerned about, particularly water consumption, drainage, and so on. So I think that's another example of where if you have that early dialogue, you can sometimes agree something which is more aligned with what the client wants from a sustainability point of view and what's going to give them a better outcome, but isn't just saying we'd like to just not engage with sustainability at all, but it's a kind of instead of rather than emitting that approach. That's what exactly we are doing now. I mean, we can Your um, diagram was great, wasn't it, where you showed the different, all of the different sustainability um, criteria and under, where they fall under the different um, accreditations. Hi, I was wondering what the panel thought about whether um, sustainability standards should be set in building regulations as opposed to planning policy, because if it goes through planning policy, it's out for public consultation, it has to go through public examination, can be challenged by, you know, private house build, you know, um, by, by developers. Um, but if it's set in building regs, um, it's not questioned. And if, if we can make those building regs um, sort of ambitious enough, so your views between those two uh, ways forward. Thank you. From my point of view, as a non-technical person, but working previously in a global role and seeing how standards rise and fall in and out of favour. I mean, neighbours, mm -hmm. I experienced that was purely in Australia five years ago, the way that it sort of comes through. I mean, my personal view is it's better to set performance standards or measures rather than tying it to a particular certifying body. Um, I think that that would be most prudent, but I'm not the expert on this stuff, so interested to know what others think. Can I quick, quickly ask our friends in the magic box somewhere high up above us if they could please just itch up the mics on the panel a bit, um, just to make, make, make that a little louder. I'm going to come to Saul now, because he was going to be, he, well, he is, sort of, technically. Uh, on our, our third panel, but since we're just cracking on, I, I would like to get his... He's looking slightly petrified now. Give us your thoughts, Saul. Hello. <laughs> um, that's his panel two. Panel two is becoming panel three, I think. Hi, I'm Saul Humphrey, for those of you who don't know me. Um, uh, I do some consultancy in, uh, predominantly in the east of England um, around project management, but only of sustainable projects. I'm also a professor of sustainable construction at Anglia Ruskin University, and I have a a few other roles too. Um, the last question was really interesting about where we should legislate um, the minimum standard. Should that be within MPPF and planning or building regs? We've got future homes standard coming or future building standard coming 2025, I think. But the consultation seems to have been delayed with recent um, Rishi Sunak inspired delays to net zero ambitions. I suspect that future home standards not coming anytime soon. You really interested what the panel think of that, or what the audience think about that? Um, of course, you could apply it now, and it's. I'm, I'm speaking too much, but I'm conscious that I think we're. If you're in the construction industry, if you're involved in the built environment, I think we need to be ever so careful, because I think we could soon be perceived as the fossil fuel giants of yesterday. We should be ashamed of what we're doing. 
with 40% of all greenhouse gas emissions is us. So if we sit here and we blame our client because they wanted minimum standards and they wanted a gas boiler, we shouldn't have done it for them. We should have walked away. We should have said, no, thank you. I can't help you with that. And I think we have to be much, much more responsible if we're going to have any dignity left. But there you go. I've started. I'll now shut up and let others pick that up. Thank you very much. Now, I mean, I've personally, uh, just as someone who has solar PV, got 18 uh, panels on a south-facing roof. <clears throat> Don't do that. South-facing roof, and that sort of powers on, um, on, on the abnormally warm October days we've had. Uh, that's, that's actually done us lovely. We've, we've powered our home and, and sort of sold back to the grid. Besides, I'm, I'm bemused by the argument that we must wait wait the te the technology is maturing. And, and, and I worry that's... that's that's kind of servicing those who really would like it not to mature and they're not that bothered about it ever maturing. They're quite happy with what they're doing. And, and um, I was actually quite interested in, in an email I received by someone who wanted to be here, Emma Fletcher. I don't know if anyone knows Emma Fletcher. The dist she was uh, Swaffham Prior, which is Cambridgeshire Village, Community Land Trust. And uh, they've uh, the district heating network there. They got absolutely slated by the Daily Mail. It's, oh, what a waste of time and money. Well, it's now up and running, and it's heating houses. So, you know, it's one in the eye for the tabloids. Um, but, Hannah, you look poised. Please, it's, shut me up and take over. No, it's social inequity <coughs> I just want to talk about, because we have to be really careful with this, and I absolutely... I'm, I'm, everything you say is correct, but we just have to make sure that it doesn't become an elitist game where we're looking at those who can apply green measures, which is why it comes back to your question of where should it be. It should be embedded so that we can make sure there is a minimum beyond which nobody is forced to go. So nobody is forced to live in... Because we've got this rollout of the housing stock where you're getting... It's still happening across our, across our countryside. You're getting detached houses sitting next to each other without sustainable heating plans being built right now and that's what we should be ashamed of and so we need to make sure that it's embedded in our in our um in everywhere i don't mind where it goes it can go in building regs and in planning got, for all i care as long as people are held to it you know, on the one hand we've got things like goldsmith street mm. in norwich and on the other i'm sure we could all pick on a particular development where I dare say there has been a, a kind of pile them in, much as we can. New homes bonus. I don't even know where that is anymore, Saul. Mm. <coughs> no, he shakes his head. Uh, and, you know, <coughs> job done. And I know that's slightly diverting from the heritage thing. But I'm just wondering what, I mean, I'll come, back, come back to you, Tom, because I'm conscious you weren't here for the start, so I want to make, you, make sure it was a worthwhile trip for you. Um, I mean, as well, it's quite inter what interested me, the point I was going to make was the number of people perhaps in, in listed properties who have, a, I dare say, a duty, but they see the installation of these measures as dead soon, why worry? So, Tom, what's, pick something out of that word salad for me. Well, it's tricky. Well, I think about my own father who... Uh lives out in the sticks and has an oil-heated home, but has decided to put solar PV on his garage, which he sells a very small amount back to the grid, and actually understanding, was that the best use of his money? Is that the best investment? I mean, I would argue no, much better to think about alternative ways of doing it. I think for private homeowners, particularly listed buildings, it can be tricky to really understand um, the right interventions to be made. 
um, to really improve the performance of, of their own assets. But everything's different. Everybody has different priorities, and if you know, understanding um, what the homeowner's priority is, is is key. I mean, the same for organisations as well. I mean, we're talking about carbon, climate change is clearly the most pressing challenge. But there are broader sustainability considerations that we need to bear in mind at the same time. Um, but that, you know, on a on a national level, you know, there's huge challenges around grid capacity, particularly in metropolitan areas. Imagine a city like Cambridge, where we've got a lot of life sciences buildings, huge demand for electricity. How are we going to update <coughs> all of the housing stock, get rid of gas, get rid of gas boilers, and actually be able to provide people, you know, whatever um, sort of position they find themselves in, with good quality, warm, light, comfortable homes that are energy efficient. You know, that, that's really challenging. Anyone else on the panel have any reflection? Um, I was just thinking about like, the question about where should the minimum standards be. And I think, a bit like Hannah, I don't mind where they are, but if the carrot isn't working, they should be the stick. Um, and that should be as high as possible. What is more of a challenge is they take so long to do. So what is the minimum standard now? Is, is that going to be barely minimum in about five years' time? The, the time it takes between starting that process and getting it done, is, it, is that too long? So how do you, how do you make that process shorter? Uh, how does something become standardised? And I think you, it, it's about reinforcing, the, re, reinforcing and encouraging the people that do it really well and making that, make, making that the standard. I was really taking what we talked about evidence and having those case studies and saying, actually, you can do it. Here, here it is. Here is an example. Tweak it. You don't need, you don't need to reinvent the wheel each time um, and for that to become the standard. Thanks. James Cheshire from Local Authority Building Control in Cambridge. Um, I know this is about existing buildings mainly, but the new buildings will be historic buildings. And I think we're talking about the uh, minimum standards and they are probably there when you'd want them to be up there. Um, and then the other issue is them uh, not being enforced. And, you know, from a local authority building control perspective, we're in competition with the approved inspectors and the large volume house builders are the... Um, country generally tend to go with our competitors and uh, potentially the um, the new um, transitional arrangements that have been brought in in the recent uplift 2021 uplift should really uh, help this but I still think they're being cheated you know to a certain extent and that's a, a, a massive issue as well because there's going to be houses now still being built and continue to be built, potentially on the 2012 standards. And it's quite ridiculous, really, but that's an issue that we have little control over, especially with our um, budgets that we're allowed. Sorry, this is, this is just a, a quick one. Um, and it was because, Hannah, you brought up that any building before 1919 is considered a traditional building, historic building. How do you make walk-in Victorian terraces sustainable 
into the future. <laughs> uh, we've, I've actually got, we'll see. So today or tomorrow, I find out from Innovate UK whether we've got our funding. So we've got a funding bid in for Innovate UK to um, set up a service which is aligns with PAS 2035, which is an assessment of those terrace houses and one of the things that I think is really interesting and you could say this in any city it's just Norwich that I know but in Norwich I'm, I'm guessing and I think Norwich City Council have probably got this information which I need to try and get hold of that if we looked at a two and a half bedroom terrace house one of the larger walk-in terraces the mile cross style small three bedroom semis and the city centre um, terrace above shops that we could probably cover up to 50% of the building stock in the actual potential testing. And then you've just got orientation changes. So we're, that's what I'm hoping to develop is to have that information so we can start to generalise and say, for you, in a two-bed, two-and-a-half-bedroom house with a north-facing rear elevation, the best thing you can do is upgrade your windows and put external wall insulation on the rear. And so if somebody could just give you those simple answers, we would be so much further through this process. So I'm... Fingers crossed. Hopefully, in a few months' time, I'll be able to give you those answers. <laughs> OK. Well, if I get the funding, you can be one of my exemplars then. <laughs> uh, th thanks, thanks very much. Um, I just want to uh, pick up on the point of um, where the, the stick or the, ca the carrot should go in terms of should it be, should it be in planning policy, you know, planning policy of building regs. Um, the background being that the Mid Suffolk are currently working on a local plan and planning policy from 1998. I don't know if anyone remembers 1998, <laughs> but it was quite a while ago, and they're still, you know, still consulting on their, their current local plan. So, this, the speed in the process with which that might happen is not fast enough to tackle the problem that we're on. Um, to, to tie into that, um, Architects Climate Action Network um, produced a Climate Emergency Conservation Area Toolkit. So that's to provide um, a methodology and guidance of how um, local authorities don't necessarily need to invest the time themselves into how to understand and um, uh, assess and then upgrade conser conservation areas. So I think that's an, an, an example. That's, that's free to, generally free to download. I, I think I should, I'm right in saying that. Um, so the question to the panel is, what else can we do as industry experts to work together to sort of to move things along ourselves? Great question. Hannah? Um, funding. So this is one of the great things that we're finding at the moment. So one of the great movements that's leading... All, I don't know if it's the same. It would be interesting to see if it's the same for everybody else. But the exemplar projects that we're being pushed forward are projects where the funders have ESG requirements and they are requiring clients to prove that they are. So they're the, you're talking big estate holders, people who have or in, it, have big relationships with the banks who are then being encouraged <laughs> in a financial encouragement way to um, make sure that they're, they're providing that advocacy role and understanding best practice in their own built environment. So I think that if we as a, an industry work really hard to talk to the funders because if they make it requirement of the lending, that's one of the best ways that we can make change fast. I just wondered if, I'm looking at Laura from panel number one. Panel number one, please. <clears throat> Leap up the stairs, live from Norwich, quiz of the week. Any thoughts on that? 
Uh, we are certainly doing a lot more work on green financing, um, whether it's specific finance for a green project or um, sort of sustainably linked um, finance where you have certain KPIs to meet as the, um, le as the um, person borrowing the money um, linked to sort of sustainability criteria. So there's a lot of that going on. We're doing a lot of work for universities, actually, um, who are re redeveloping their heritage estates. Thank you very much. And I'm going to leap back down again. I'm going to be stepped in today. Excellent. <clears throat> uh, thank you, Mike. A um, couple of observations. There was a, a really good question from the floor earlier about building control and picking your inspector and volume house builders tending to prefer to build builds to accord with the oldest regulations that they can get away with. I think the transitional arrangements occur that if you'd got the foundations started on a house, you could build to the old regs. Would you believe how many houses were started? Just put the foundations in to go back a couple of years later, three years later to carry on. And that, that happened throughout the country. Not for the first time. It happens every time reg change, regs, regs change. So that irresponsible behaviour is something we've got to put a stop to. Um, so I question the builders that are doing it, but the volume house builders, I think the problem is that they're, they're selling to consumers who probably don't understand this conversation who don't know they've just built, bought a house that's got a gas boiler that will probably have to be replaced in X year's time. That's going to cost so much more to heat than it needed to. Um, but we'll, somehow we've got to inform them. And that was the point I was coming up to. How can we influence this? Um, Hannah correctly went straight to funding and in funded financial institutions. I think the other way we can influence this enormously is for education. So being here today, um, a centre of education like Cambridge, and there are two universities in Cambridge, I'm kind of obliged to say. Um, but aside from that, our involvement with schools, with FE colleges, how we teach the next generation to understand this discussion, I think, is absolutely imperative. I, I welcome observations. In um, the Institute of Structural Engineers, they're only just bringing in our sort of technical exam where they become chartered engineer. They're only just bringing in in January the carbon calculation uh, methods, so where you're ca calculating the carbon of materials, um, concrete elements, steel elements. I think that's something that should have been done ages ago. They're starting to bring out more on, I mean, there's a good article in the, the recent uh, journal about reuse and refurbishment of buildings, which is good timing. And there's a big push for it, and um, on all stages about embodied carbon, um, transportation of materials, you know, not just the material, recycling. But when I started uh, my career in the early 2000s, it was you know, it's very sparse, um, very limited. And I think it like also it needs to be in universities, it needs to be in colleges, apprenticeships, um, it, it, as a as a as a first point, you know. Of, in the brief, which needs to be in, which is actually important, needs to be in the brief of the project. Um, you know, what you're going to build, how big, but sustainability as well. This is, this is a bit of an unworthy question um, because it's based on the sort of slight reading of the political runes um, based on <clears throat> party conference season. And I just wonder who in the room has experience of both the, the shared Cambridge planning service and AN other local authority planning? Your hands, please. And is there anyone who's willing to... Is, is there, can anyone say there's an appreciable difference between the two? I'm not trying to pick on anyone. I just would like to know. <clears throat> there we go. <laughs> I'm Rowan Hayson. I'm an architect in Cambridge. And I will say that 
in answer to the previous question, building regs or planning, where should we legislate? I find the problem with planning legislation is that there is a bit of a postcode lottery depending on which authority you're dealing with. And it's very difficult for clients to understand and for architects and for the different inspectors who are trying to check that everything's being done correctly if the rules are different. Um, and Eddington is an example where you have um, one, the three C shared authority, and you've got two local authorities. So you have different rules in terms of planning um, conditions, but you've got one planning authority trying to enforce the different rules from the two local authorities. And it's just, it's bizarre. And I've got lots of projects where there's different disability regulations on different projects with the same building inspectors who are now enforcing the planning conditions. So it's very chaotic. And I think that um, there needs to be a level playing field, really, both in terms of planning legislation and building regulations. But I think it's much harder to achieve with planning because it's political. And it goes back to decisions made by the actual councillors. So I think it's, it's very complicated. But I think if it could be through building regulations, it becomes much more of a standardised procedure. I'm sure you'll have all uh, had some interest in what uh, Keir Starmer had to say on the Today programme about delocalising planning and, 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 and frequent use of the word bulldozer. <laughs> yeah, um, so uh, James from 3C Building Control, which is uh, Cambridge City Council, South Cambridgeshire and Huntingdon District Council. Um, a lot of the time, you know, we, we get confused from the general public with the planning department, which is Greater Cambridge Shared Planning, which is Cambridge City and South Cambridgeshire. Um, so um, the, the, sometimes we're um, frustrations with the planning department, um, which, you know, um, can sometimes be... Uh, um, took out on the building control department, although we're separate departments, separate legislations, there's always that confusion. So, um, you know, um, um, Cambridge, uh, I think, is quite lucky in that, in terms of accessibility, um, they've got an enhanced standard for, for accessibility. 95% of new builds need to be to the M42 standard. So um, above and beyond the, the basic minimum standard, which is, I think, is fantastic. Um, but I think um, it's... I just want to sort of emphasise that, you know, uh, us at 3C Local Authority Building Control, um, we, um, we're... Although we have the same director, we're, we're, we're a separate department, separate uh, legislation and... You know, I hope that people in the room who use our services find that we, you know, provide a good service. And if if we don't, always welcome feedback. Thank you very much. Oh, Stacey. <clears throat> Thank you. Thank you. Um, I'm hearing all this, and of course, I, I want to stay positive. <laughs> um, and you know, in terms of solutions, it feels like everyone's, and I don't mean anybody in this room. Um, it feels very siloed. The planners do what the planners do. The building control do what they do. The architects do what they do. You know, large home builders, developers do what they do, estate agents. 
I know that from a civic point of view, the, the National Civic Organization, Civic Voice, has formed an all-party parliamentary group. Is there any sort of benefit of having one from each area creating some sort of unified voice so that we hit education, we hit you know, um, building regs, we hit policy, so that we actually make progress with this and not find ourselves five years from now in the same room discussing the same thing? Oh, the issue with that is that we, we end up talking about the levers that are not ours to pull, if you forgive the rather tortured metaphor. But I am interested, um, and I think during when we sort of had our brief, briefing meeting before this, you put it very nicely, what is the optimum solution we can work towards in the legal and regulatory environment we currently inhabit? Because, we, yes, we can campaign for a better planning system. Yes, we can talk about better enforcement. Ultimately, those things are slightly out of our, our, our hands, um, except it's election time. What is the optimum? I'd like to say, and we'll pass along the panel for this one, I think. What is the optimum solution we can, we can work towards? How do we get there in the system we have? Can I just interrupt that bit? I, yeah, I, go ahead. I agree with that. We can't change or pull those levers right now, today. But most people in this room are part of a professional organisation. These are membership organisations that are there to support you as a member. So you can put pressure on them. You can vote in elections. You can speak to people about things that are important to you. But then that, so you can change it. You just can't change it today. And I think I do like to try and see the positive side of things. And I think that things have changed. They've changed slowly, um, a lot slower than I think anybody would like. But things are changing. Um, perhaps not always for the better, and sometimes we go backwards and we'd like to be a lot further forward, and it is an emergency and there is a lot that has to be done. But there has been an improvement, a small one, and it should be a huge one, but we will, we will get there. Uh, and, you know, day by day, step by step, I'll give people the evidence so uh, to pull those levers to make try and make the bigger changes so we have a sort of a system within um, the sort of uh, within the RIBA that central RIBA might not understand what individual members sort of have to deal with on a day-to-day -day basis so how do we get try and get somebody sitting in an office in London to understand that uh, as an architect my insurance is ridiculous uh, and we can't afford to pay it Oh, we're not can't afford to pay it, but it, it's ridiculous. It's got so many restrictions on it, and this affects multiple people. Why should somebody in London care about that? So what we do is we gather evidence. So in this situation, we take evidence of what works well, have, have the toolkits, put them in a place that's easy for people to access, and try and speed up that level of change. At the same time, use your membership organisations to put pressure on them, to say, this is important to us, you want us to be a member, Make it happen for us. You, you've got the ability, as large whether it's the RTPI, the RIBA, the RICS, they can lobby government, they yes, can get involved in things like that and make those longer-term changes for us. Day-to-day, -day, we just keep, keep trying really, really hard and influencing clients and working with planners, working with local authorities, working with building control to do more than the minimum. Yeah. I think advocating for best practice in any way you can. I mean, that's why we're here today. It's like we, we, I, we talk at these events and most of you don't need us to say this because you're already here for the reason that you've already 
bought in. Do you know, there's, we're, we're having the conversation in, in a self-selected group. But if each of us go away from this thinking about a few more things and talk at more events and more events, we, we're generally lifting the calibre of information and the conversations that are being had. And as Jermaine says, it is happening. The difference between the conversations that are had at these events now compared to the conversations, conversations had at these events three years ago is phenomenal because everybody's, everybody's expectations and understanding of what is required for change is elevating. It's not elevating as fast as we need it to, but this is our this advocating for it through your professional bodies, through your voting, through your work, through your conversations that you're having. This is how we can this is how we can make the great change. point. Great, thank you for thank you both for sort of elevating my slightly gloomy. <laughs> you, just, you just get sort of pretty. You don't, you don't want to, to go to these events where people sort of talk about things we can't do. But I was really sort of keen to focus on what we can. But uh, I'm going to come to Andrew in a second because he had his hands up. But I just, Willem, Tom, Nathan, anything to add? Communication. I think we should all talk to each other. Consultants, um, developers, clients. Um, about sustainability. You know. I know some, um, again, not in the room, um, don't. They've just got their narrow view of what they want to build, whether it's sustainable or not. Um, and in terms of heritage as well, whether it's a nice, you know, a traditional material or not, um, which we just need to speak to more. It's a really interesting point that coming together of the critical mass that creates its own momentum. And pretty soon, you don't want to be on the outside of the group; you want to be on the inside. Tom, I would just say, I mean, beyond buildings, just sustainability in general for everybody. It's a collaborative effort. We need to work together. We all, as organisations, we all have suppliers, we have customers of one sort or another. To work together, have those conversations with people, try and create change. Everybody's commitments overlap, and we all have a duty to support each other in turn to create that improved future, really. So go and speak to people, collaborate. Well, I had a couple of very quick ones. I think one, like your question about, you know, what more can groups like ACAN and so on do? I think, in a way, creating a confidential forum for people to share failures and for that to be distributed through the industry is quite useful because it's very easy to get anybody to stand up here and go, I did this project. There were a few wrinkles along the way because everybody <laughs> likes a bit of a story like that, but it's a tremendous success at the end. But a way of people sharing, actually, we tried this, it was really bad within the practice. Nobody's ever doing that again. Nobody outside is going to find out about it. It would be really useful. I think the EPCs or the, the education points, I think there's... I think that is really important, and I think you are seeing it getting embedded into you know, architects' training and so on. But it's, that's necessary, but it's not sufficient. We need to do other stuff. You, know, you could rework EPCs so that they were more like a, you know, the health warning you get on a, smoke, on a cigarette packet to say, you've got a gas boiler. This is a really warning sign when you're buying your house. So there's some education happening in there as well. Um, and I think just generally making sure, like you were saying about the best practice side, that on all of the different ways that we're all collectively engaging in projects, that we're making sure we're not the person who's or, um, like throttling things back, that we've asked for or tried to go as far as it's possible to go on the sustainability point of view. And it is somebody else, whether it's you know, the client or the fund or somebody else who said, actually, no, we're not going to go quite that far. We have to dial it back, rather than say that we don't end up sat there going, oh, well, it was all the bloody X instead of being us. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point you made about the institutional learning. 
and that how we feel much more when things go horribly sideways. Of course, we don't want to talk about it. And you know, we've uh, had many jobs where I sort of sat quietly and hoped no one would notice. That it was <laughs> um, and um, I come on up to Andrew, who's waited very patiently. Forgotten the question now. Um, no, I, haven't, um, I think it's possible that I'm the only person in the room who's actually written a building regulation. Um, and I might help. It might help if I kind of share my experience on this. Um, uh, so sorry if it's rambling, but there is a point to it at the end. The point is Briam. Um, in 2023, uh, sorry, 2003, I was approached by DFE, and they said. We think we need some regulations on acoustics in schools. What a good idea. We think it's a good thing that pupils should be able to hear what teachers are saying. Um, and pr prior to this, there'd been guidance, lots of guidance, piles of guidance. Everyone ignored it. You know, it's guidance, it's unenforceable. Um, I had the dubious pleasure of writing Building Bulletin 93 and Building Regulation E4 for the DFE. They even paid me for it, which is more <laughs> than they're doing nowadays for, re uh, for revising it. Um, and um, it was very, very dubiously successful. Um, the big problems with it were we had to jack the standards right the way down because they're regulations. You cannot have a regulation which is a standard for excellence. Um, you're designing to the lowest common denominator. And by existing, that regulation then becomes your ipso facto standard. So you need something better than that. Um, and um, the other problem, of course, was enforcement and the um, overwhelming problem that LABCR rushed off their feet um, uh, and um, aren't always involved, of course, because of approved inspectors. Um, and it's difficult enough for them to deal with all of the easy stuff, let alone acoustics, or might I suggest sustainability, however you can define sustainability in a building regulation. Um, what really, really helped um, and what saved the entire concept was Briam. Actually, entirely wrongly, acoustics is nothing to do with sustainability, it's to do with health. Um, uh, but that was written into Briam, and as a result, some genius at BRE actually wrote some sensible guidance going back to what we think is a good standard in schools, and also, incidentally, a good standard for sound insulation between houses rather than the happy standard we have now. Um, and um, that really, really worked. That, of course, didn't apply to all projects, but it applied to a huge number of projects. It became a much better standard. Um, it, of course, became a target for contractors because they had to comply with it. Um, and I can't help thinking that something similar, possibly, again, under the aegis of BRE, might be the way of getting something which, without being obviously a stick, it's more of a carrot to start with, becomes the stick, becomes the ipso facto regulation. It won't be brilliant, but it's a starting point and you always work up from that. Thank you, Andrew. Sorry, Drew, were you indicating? No, no, okay. Anybody got any thoughts? Because I'm conscious we, we, we're doing it. Ah, ah, David. Hannah was saying just before that we are the converted in this room and I think there is a danger it, it's good that we carry on talking, it's good that we share experience, that's what our network is all about, is peer learning and peer support. But I think I, my previous two jobs were managing design review panels, and I've sat and heard a sort of landscape architect 
giving a polemic about UN climate goals to a couple of house builders on the other side of the table for whom it was just sort of totally over their head. I think we need to find ways of finding common ground, understanding the levers that are going to, we need to press to cut through with what are the, what are the mass of clients out there, the, the biggest number of clients out there who, who are the ones that, you know, just want to do what they've always done, just want to not necessarily maximise profits, but optimise profits by having an easy life and, and just try, well, what can we say that will... And I think on those, all those panels that I, I used to run in different regions, there was very few of those sort of industry experts who could really cut through, who could really find common ground to talk to those not great clients. Thank you very much. I think that is, that is the challenge with events like this. It is very, very easy to assemble the coalitions of the willing. It's much harder to get people who disagree with you to come along unless they really want to shout to you. <laughs> Thank you, Mike. Um, this is just really an observation um, that perhaps the next panel ought to involve a cost consultant because so many of our great intentions are taken away as an opportunity by the costing process. I know we have a very well-respected cost consultant here behind me, <laughs> so he might like to respond. But I just wonder, how do we overcome that um, impediment which often dilutes the intent of the client? Where is he? Where is, where is that cost <laughs> consultant now? There's an empty seat behind you. Is that you? You are. No, no, sorry. Oh, oh, oops. <laughs> the right one. Yeah, I mean, we spoke about uh, the need for communication, and we do need to be part of that. But we also need education. I think someone said about some projects being stopped because of costs. Now, if we don't have the knowledge, there's a risk to those costs. And most of my colleagues will put, price, you know, will put a price to that risk. And if that's a false risk, you are stopping sustainable projects going ahead. So we do need education and we need information to be coming back about costs. But we do need to be part of the process. And that's been, we've had a kind of an experience related to that. As in, I think the cost in the QS is in a, a really key role, but it has to be with an interplay with the design team helping with that. You know, so we've had on, say, new build passive house schemes where someone proposes it, the client goes, oh, that sounds great. How much does it cost? QS? And they're sort of sat in the headlights saying, going, well, if I tell them it's really cheap and it's expensive later, I'm going to get a kicking. Um, if I tell them it's really expensive and they decide not to do it, I know how to price a standard approach. So you know, what happens next? And on those ones, the thing that's worked well from our point of view, I think, has been for the, the design team to help schedule out this is what the base case looks like. This is the thing which is going to be different if you take this approach. So that they, the QS can then run a ruler over it and say, actually, these are the differences. This is the price. And we've seen schemes where you know, the uplift reported went from like 12% down to 4%. And suddenly, the client's making a decision, but it's a more informed decision with a bit less terror involved. Sorry. I'm literally going through that process at the moment. So we're doing one of the projects that 
is one of these where cost is the issue. So a really aspirational project um, under the Living Building Challenge, which I've spoken before about. Um, but at that, the, the first stumbling block is the amount of consultant support required at the front end to make before it even becomes a viable project. But what we're doing at the moment is the design team have stayed appointed to go through an exercise with the cost consultant to work out where the various different sustainability measures are adding value and costing. And so there will be a, a sort of pros and cons matrix across the entire project for which bits get employed at which stages and which and what the risk to the project is and how it can be quantified. And it's it's a really detailed process. So it's not something that could, the cost consultants not going to be able to do it on their own because they've not had that in-depth thinking and it goes right the way down to procurement. Like how is it going to, how are you going to get somebody to be insured to do innovative building? Like it's, it, there's, there's real complexities in it, which we're, yeah, we're in the process of trying to quantify. Can I just ask, oh, sorry, Sabrina, I'm going to. I just wanted to add to that, coming from a, um, client perspective and having been also an architect and I'm, I'm often bridging that gap between which I think now after today I feel like it's an even more important role than I perhaps thought because I think it's bringing that so an informed client is the client that we need and I think um, often when we have presentations there's a lot of translating and architects can only do so much in that translating because sustainability goes are more beyond architecture it's something that i often can't explain why something adds benefit though it might cost us extra now and i think it's it's just that informing it's it's kind of similar to what we've um over the last 10 minutes what we've said is informing the client so that they can actually sell that product because ultimately we also have to sell that product to members or wh wherever it might be going so that the project can go ahead and the more information we have in a very simplified way is exactly what we need because I think it's that technical expertise that needs to be translated into, into that um, simplified approach. There's something I'd be really interested from everybody here and it'd be really interesting, it, it probably exists, I just don't know what it is, as a value for carbon measure. So we, we always have to prove value for money and as local authority you're always being, looking to prove that value for money. But I wonder if one of the criteria that we could use as either a carrot or a stick in the future is a value for carbon. And if you cannot justify the value for carbon over a period of time, then the project shouldn't proceed. And I wonder whether that is a measure that could be developed and one that could be used in procurement. I know that Norfolk County Council are, have got a, a paper that's coming through. Um, I, I don't know how far through the process it is, but it's an operational carbon cost analysis so when they're doing their procurement measure they can work out um, how much uplift they can take for the savings in carbon in the operation of their projects and they're using in transport and in construction and I that's a first step but I think there are there's there's sort of many steps along that path that can, we can go is that I mean uh, as, as someone who's completely uninitiated in these things and Dean sort of talked about and, and, and so did uh, um, Sophie, Sabrina the the flow of information and what I'm just, as, as a closing thought, and I'll sort of ask if anyone else has got some closing thoughts in a second, but as, is, is there kind of, I mean, you talked about Norfolk County Council, a, a kind of repository of this thing, and how, if there isn't, how can it be made? It's ACAN, isn't it? ACAN is one of the best that we have at the moment, for, for us, anyway. 
So is that widely sort of shared? And, uh, well, I'm, I'm thinking, I'm, really what I'm thinking is in terms of people like, like me, who might be sort of counsellors or, or, or some such things. I, I know, I'll go and read X, Y, Z. Oh, no, ACAN's probably a bit techie for that. I was going to say... <laughs> I'm probably doing something if, a bit more... If, if you're in a planning meeting, you've got to try and convince the, pl the planning committee of, of something. Yeah. That, you know, that authoritative, and dare I say slightly dumbed down, version, uh, Janet and John version, that is accessible yet authoritative. The Letty guides are good. The Letty guides are really good. So right. The Lung That's London good. Environmental Transformation Initiative, is that right? L-E-T-I? It's L-E-T-I. They're stopping being London. Uh, oh, are because they? Okay. Uh, <coughs> otherwise it's a bit limited. But yeah, yeah Letty stuff is good. Thank you, everyone. I'm supposed to give some closing thoughts at this point, but I think, to be honest, you've, you've done us proud, all of you. Um, could I just have the for this panel, for the can I have a, just a round of applause of appreciation for this fantastic panel? Possibly my my wittering. Can I? Any anybody got any last thoughts before we get some food? No, oh, excellent. Oh, it's all. <laughs> uh, Mike, thank you. Uh, I, yeah, it's not for me to sum up the day. Far from it. But I just think if I could just reflect for a second that I I do think the built environment is a massive part of the problem right now. But I think people in this room can also be a massive part of the solution. So, Mike, I just I feel it's incumbent on us to say thank you for bringing us together. And perhaps we could show our, our applause to Mike. One gets some lunch. <laughs> thank you ever so much. I've really appreciated your, your input. It's been fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. And I should just say sorry. Thank you to Mills and Reeve as well for their support because this wouldn't be possible without them. So thank you to Mills and Reeve. If you feel that a ripple would be appropriate, I certainly wouldn't. Eastern Promise is a Priors Croft production in association with Mills and Reeve. Achieving more together. To hear other episodes of the Eastern Promise podcast and to find out more about what we do, go to our website at easternpromise.org dot uk